Welcome to Music Speaks. This is the podcast that is dedicated to how music impacts one person's life. For this show, we have two co-hosts. My name is Hunter Sagona, and his name is Sean Rimkunis. Ciao, Sean. Hey, Hunter. Hunter and I believe that many people have a playlist that makes their life unique through music. We pride ourselves on building upon our musical knowledge with our featured guests, jamming to incredible music, talking about a wide variety of artists and composers, and everything in between. Here is a musical quote for today. Music and rhythm make their way into the secret spaces of our soul, Plato. So let us introduce today's guest on Music Speaks. Everett Rendy is a theatrical designer throughout Fairfield and New Haven County areas. His credits include lighting design, technical direction, stage management, production management, and master electrician work for several programs, including Trumbull High School, Rockwell Dance Center, Guilford High School Theater Arts, Trumbull Youth Association, Lee Lund Dance, Penn State Center Stage, Broadway Method Academy, and more. In Everett's association with Trumbull High School Musicals, his student co-designer was nominated by the Stephen Sondheim Awards, Connecticut High School Musical Theater Awards for Student Lighting Design Award in 2018 and 2019. Beyond theatrical design, Everett is a freelance photographer, videographer, and editor. This includes launching a photography collective called Visibly Elsewhere in 2018. His lighting technical contributions can be seen in an upcoming music video for the punk rock group Never Kept. So, Hunter, how do you know the guest for today? Well, I knew Everett in high school. Um, he was the grade below me, and my sister was the grade below him. And we had worked, we never really knew each other, but we had worked on the musicals at the same time. So I was in the pit, he was on lighting design. Um, or wherever they needed him in the technical department, but usually lighting design and soundboard. And, um, you know, just sort of through the whole being part of the community, we were familiar with each other. And then through a long series of events um, and association with TYA, my sister Gabby became friends with him. Um, and now they're the best of friends. And so I've gotten to know him since in a more social setting, um, but he's, always been involved in theater arts he's a big um music buff music aficionado and so has a wide variety of um both musical knowledge in the uh, genre sense but also in the like the stats and the band histories and that kind of stuff so um, I, i'm excited to talk to him so am i and i'd like to welcome everett to our podcast all right hey everett how are you I'm good. How are you? I am well, and I hope you are too, because we have so many questions to talk about today and so many different topics to get into. And mm. the first topic, as I think it's on a lot of our minds, because we did talk about this in your bio a lot, was your interest in theatrical design. And my first question is, where did that interest stem from? Um, so I, the, my first show that I actually ever worked was, uh, my sophomore year of high school, uh, a friend of mine was in, uh, the musical program at my high school, Trumbull High, and she wanted to go to their first fall play meeting. They were, uh, starting to do student run fall productions, 
and she didn't want to go alone. So she was like, hey, can you just come to this meeting after school? You don't have to sign up for anything. I just don't want to go alone. And while I was there, uh, they were talking about how they were going to have students uh, run the soundboard, do lighting design, run props, set design, kind of student direct. And at the time, because I was so interested in music, even though it was a play, hearing that I could potentially, uh, you know, run the soundboard or learn more about live sound, I decided to sign up and it kind of just took off from there. So that's kind of where I started out was in just running a soundboard for a small fall play at my high school. Sure. And I want to mention something to you because I've I've never been in the soundboard room because not a lot of people are allowed in there for good reason. Um, and I know people are definitely uh, like, you can't go in there. That's okay. But I want to mention to you quickly because there is just, I am just amazed on how many buttons there are in that room. Yeah. It is crazy. <laughs> I can't even imagine doing anything in that room. But like, how does that, how, how does it work? Like, I mean, like, I, I would be so overwhelmed looking at that soundboard. What would you want to like, if you were, if you're going to introduce it to someone, what would you want to tell them about the soundboard in general? So, uh, so I actually mentor uh, high school students uh, at Trumbull High and now also at Guilford High School in uh, mostly theatrical lighting design, but sometimes also in sound. And one of the first topics that uh, we cover is uh, just the difference between uh, so you have the faders on the soundboard, which is your volume, and then you have gain and just the difference between those two things where gain is amplification and volume is just increasing uh, how loud or quiet something is. Um, but like outside of that, uh, it depends on the board because you have old school, which is like, you know, the analog where there's literally just hundreds of buttons and faders and just, you know, knobs everywhere versus everything that's digital now. The console itself can look very small, but it, it can be just unbelievable how many things that board can do between there's like uh, graphic equalization or, uh, you know, whether you can put different effects on it. So reverb, uh, you know, echo, uh, just, you know, all these different things. And it can just exist on this very small console. I mean, like even computers now you have you can use like GarageBand or Logic and just do anything and everything that you want in recording, so. So it's interesting because when I started this podcast, I had no technical know-how and I was a grandpa when I started mm -hmm. working on these kind of things. And I felt overwhelmed even trying to do that. So again, I give you more credit than ever because that is one tough job. And I think with that in mind, I think Hunter has another question asking you about what aspect you have, the aspect of your job that you enjoy the most. Yeah, so, and just a quick hearkening back to the previous question. The biggest takeaway from learning about the soundboard, I think, is do not push every button possible. Yes. <laughs> because we know how that turns out. Yes. And make sure it's plugged in. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, like Sean said, you know, you've worked in many aspects of theater from uh, technical direction, lighting design, stage management, production management, electrical uh, work, you know, master electrician. Uh, which of those aspects do you find either you're best suited to or that you have enjoyed the most? Um, ooh. I mean, in the lighting design process, uh, in terms of theatrical lighting design, 
um, you know, you, there's so many steps involved with, uh, you know, where, where there's the design process, you have the master electrician, uh, you have your board programmer, you have your spotlight ops, mm -hmm. like there's, there's so many uh, layers to what encompasses lighting design in theater that uh, I think I've enjoyed every job, even like the spotlight, you know, just being a spotlight operator or the person who sits out at production and hits go during the live performance on the board. Like every single one of those, I think has kind of taught me something about either patience, discipline, challenge, creativity. Um, but at this point in time, I would say the two jobs that I really enjoy are the programming aspects of like when we get to a show uh, and we start programming each of the cues for lighting and we start kind of establishing um, for at least for community and high school theater, it's like where the blocking is and, you know, what yeah. lights are coming up and what intensity. And it's a little bit more involved in that, in that way than I think the more professional gigs that I've done in, in terms of uh, high school theater, there's a lot of not until tech week, do we even know where certain <laughs> people are standing on stage and, and the challenge of that in programming is, is integrated into the design. It's not so much like, uh, you know, this light goes at 50%. It's like, where can we make this uh, work when we've got 60 kids on stage, but it still needs to look moody and, you know, kind of evoke some sort of feeling or emotion when it is a high school production. So the programming, I, I enjoy the challenge of it uh, significantly. Um, and but, we know how much the cast and the crew enjoy the blocking of lighting. The, oh, the, yes. With the six hours in the dark and tripping over each other. Yes. I mean, in high school theater, a lot of the, the programming happens. And even community theater, uh, at, Sean, as you may kind of uh, recall from your time at TYA, and there's so much programming that happens in a short window of time where you go into it at, from a cast perspective, you go into that weekend before tech week and it sits probe and you guys are just trying to acclimate yourselves to the band. Maybe you're doing the costume parade and finally getting into your costumes for lighting. That's like, all right, we've had a, basically one week to get everything hung, programmed, whatever. And now we're going to sit there and try and figure out every single cue of the show in a 12 hour window. And you have all these crew members on stage just bored out of their mind saying, all right, can you take five steps to the left? Can you take two steps forward? All right, now can you go up onto that platform? Can you two stand next to each other? And yeah, it's the programming though, is, it's just so much fun because there is that challenge. But outside mm -hmm. of that, in the early stages of the process for lighting design, I would say for me building the plot where you have to figure out what in lighting instrument you're putting where and at what height and uh, you know what color because uh, again in high school in community theater you don't really have a big budget to do a lot of LED sort of color changing fixtures so a lot of it's just uh, conventional fixtures where you basically put one color in it and then it stays that way for the whole show so trying to figure out an entire palette that's cohesive for a two plus hour you know uh, production is it's exciting I enjoy that that's it, it is interesting when you delve into like the various uh, not not hitches but like there's there is it's more complicated than people realize you know they think like okay you got that spotlight I'll point it over there like mm. they think it's it's that and then I can't help but think of and Sean you would you would know about this 
in Ragtime, I remember uh, you talking about how when you were trying to do the lighting and Mother was in white mm -hmm. and it was, I forget what the song was. Till we, was it Till We Reached the Day? I think it was, and you said like you turn the lights on and it was just like, we're blind. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, no. That needs to be toned down. Yeah, no, I mean like, and that's, that's certainly uh, in the tech process, there's, I, I wish some people could really see how many notes get taken during the tech process, specifically just for lighting. Yeah. Like everybody thinks, you know, the director has notes for the cast where it's like, you know, fix your blocking, you know, uh, change your tone here, whatever it is. But for lighting, we have sometimes pages and pages and pages of notes where it's even the smallest things of bring the intensity of a light down 10%, which, you know, from an audience perspective who may not know those technical, technical elements, they may say, I, I wouldn't have made a difference to me, but from the director's perspective, from my perspective, there's a significant difference between those two things. Right. Well, same thing in music performance, and Sean, you can attest to this as well. You know, if a crescendo is not quite right, a decrescendo, or someone doesn't hit the um, sforzando, you know, the way it's supposed to, the audience is truthfully not going to know the difference. Like, they're not really going to be able to tell. But yeah. you as the performers, and, you know, Sean's more of a performance-based player than I am, it makes a difference to you mm -hmm. and to the ensemble. Oh, yeah. Right? Like so it's the same thing, you know, you will notice, and that's what's that's key yeah i mean and the the thing though is that when you take all of those small notes that on its own seem pretty insignificant but you kind of add them all up together and when you make those changes it does significantly improve the performance i can imagine from a music perspective you know so much is changing how loud or soft a certain you know section is especially i mean i pull i played bass clarinet when i was in middle school so <laughs> I sat, I sat very close to the baritone sax and a lot of uh, just all the saxophone players and the difference between how loud or quiet they played sometimes really changed the overall mood of the song sometimes. <laughs> yeah, you got, you get like a completely different message out of it just by something as insignificant, what seems insignificant, but it's very significant. And that's the reason the music is meant to be interpreted the way that it is. Or mm -hmm. in my case for lighting, uh, you know, the intensity and how bright or soft things are, what color you choose to put on stage. It does kind of add up ultimately in a two hour performance that you've started to create a, you know, a mood or an atmosphere that people kind of buy into. Right. Um, and, you know, you've had all this experience thus far in your relatively short, you know, our relatively short lifespan, because, you know, mm. you're about our age. Um, and Sean's question has to do with that. So, Sean. So, Everett, I wanted to ask you, um, how did you get involved with theater? I know you mentioned to me that you went to that fall play and mm. that you had sort of discovered your interest there. Mm. Um, but did it ever stem earlier in your career? Like, was it something that you were interested in? Um, so, I mean, before that, my, my only major theatrical experience came from uh, when I was in elementary school, I danced, like I did jazz and tap and ballet for maybe like four years, uh, but I stopped very early on and kind of transitioned into mostly just playing sports until I was like 15 and in high school. And so uh, at that point, 
in my life, like I really had no knowledge of theater. I had very, almost no knowledge on musicals outside of like the Disney version of Annie. <laughs> like, so, you know, I hadn't even been cultured on like the eighties version of Annie. So like, I really had zero, uh, zero theatrical experience, maybe I guess Wizard of Oz, but I, I don't, I kind of cons uh, consider that more uh, encapsulated in it being an icon and as a movie more so than a musical, you know, I don't really, I don't really count it as a musical in my mind. I count it more so as a movie just because of my recollection of it. And I think how pe other people perceive it, but yeah. So I had like no, no theatrical knowledge until I was like 15 or 16 years old. Um, and coming into that so late in comparison to my peers who had been theater geeks for probably a majority of their lives, uh, was kind of daunting because you have people tossing out all these musical titles and I had no idea who Steven Sodheim was, no idea, uh, you know, and it's just kind of funny when people talk about those, uh, you know, those, uh, those musicals and, you know, those composers, those writers and me being like, I have no idea who these people are and why, why they matter. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, so Everett, I want to ask you this. Uh, think about maybe after the first time you um, were able to work on a show, after your first show, how did it feel? I mean, what, as a performer, I know that after a show, there's always like a, you always feel pretty good. Like you, mm -hmm. there's like a, like an energy that you, you sort of feel. I'm not sure if, if you feel the same way after doing a show technical wise, but mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm just curious, how, how do you feel? Do you feel tired after doing a show? What do you think? Um, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, I would say like, I really didn't gain a huge appreciation for the production process until I would say the, until after I had actually graduated high school. So I was like 18, 19 in my college experience with theater into now my more professional experiences with theater. Like in high school, it was this mix of like, I just went to theater to hang out with my friends and have a good time and, you know, get to do some cool things that maybe not everybody else I knew was doing, especially on the technical side of things. Uh, less kids get involved in that than the cast. You have a cast of say 60 kids in your high school and maybe the crew is 30 kids. And of that only a handful are really doing involved design roles. So but I kind of answering your question now, I think looking at it, the whole process feels very tiring as you're in it. You know, you're, you're building up towards like opening the show, having an audience in front of you and seeing your work complete. And because of that, it feels very fast paced and it can feel very exhausting sort of putting your all into one or say multiple productions at once. And it, constantly making different decisions along the way to amend the process, say the budget has changed or something's not working out, or all of a sudden the costume designer has completely, you know, changed the palette that she told us that she was going to go with in our production meeting, or the set design has to be scaled back or whatever it is. It feels very tiring. Then the show happens and it kind of just happens in this blur where once the show ends, you kind of sit back and say like, wow, we did that or you know wow like I kind of wish I was back two weeks ago like really experiencing it all again it's it's an adrenaline rush it really is like all of it happening so quickly 
but it's, it's very rewarding. I, I really enjoy the feeling I get after a show where I can say all that hard work, all that exhaustion, all that effort was absolutely worth it for the most part, most shows. <laughs> <laughs> How would you say communication plays a role in your job? Oh, it's all communication. Or There's, lack thereof. Yes, or lack thereof. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the the design team, you know, you start pre-production sometimes several months in advance and you're you're having some pretty... I don't want to use the word heated, but uh, pretty complex discussions about what direction we want to take this show in. And ultimately, while the director has that interpretation in their vi that vision in their mind, um, a lot of the designers will come together and say like, well, these things are technically possible or not possible. So like we, you want to do it this way, but we can't. So what's the solution? Where do we compromise? Um, and there's times where that collaboration is ultimately what makes the show successful or unsuccessful. Because if you don't have a strong collaboration between the costume set props, even sound design, like, you know, simply where, how the costumes are constructed to fit fitting microphones onto people's bodies, like can go a long way in making a production more or less successful. Um, so yeah, collaboration and communication are huge aspects of the job. If you don't have that, I don't really think the production winds up being super successful. <laughs> sure. I, and I totally agree with you. I feel like in that line of work, you, you really want to get as much input as you can. I think mm -hmm. that that goes a long way. Um, and I think with that, Hunter really wants to dive into more of your other hobbies besides talking about theater so much. Um, so, <laughs> nice segue. Um, so, you know, you have a vested interest in music. You wouldn't be here if you didn't. Um, and obviously the, the career path or the, the hobby itself is not for everybody. And you, I, I didn't realize you played um, bass clarinet. Mm -hmm. uh, although, you, eh, now that you say that, though, I may have known it somewhere in the back of my mind. But either way, you obviously didn't choose to continue that instrument. Mm -hmm. So, um, what made you not continue it? Um, I mean, once I transitioning into high school, Trumbull High has a has a huge marching band program. Mm. So uh, I think I kind of evaluated when I was like 13 and kind of said, like, I really don't want to do marching band and it doesn't seem worth it to do concert band because people really didn't talk about Trumbull High's concert band. They really only talked about the marching band. So to me, it seemed like either I commit to doing marching band or I, I just don't do band in high school. Um, so yeah, I like kind of, I kind of evaluated it that way and said like what my commitment looks like to that sort of program. And I, you know, I enjoyed doing band and I enjoy music a lot, but I really didn't want to uh, make that, that large of a commitment to that style of music. Um, I mean, I wound up, uh, sporadically taking guitar lessons throughout the years and kind of self-teaching, you know, it's like I kind of self-taught myself guitar um, and then by extension, ukulele and kind of taught myself mandolin. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, I've always kind of, con I've continued playing instruments, just not in a band setting. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want you to know that how stereotypical that is that you took mandolin being Italian. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it is, it's like one of the, the folk instruments of Italy. Um, yes. <laughs> so that is very funny. But um, 
Well, you know, like you said, you know, it, you have to evaluate your interests, especially and, and your time going into high school when there's such a big change in people's lives, particularly socially, though it is ironic how half the, uh, perhaps not more, more than half of the theater tech department is from the marching band. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you... It can be a little you frustrating. Yeah, I was gonna say it could be a little frustrating because the, the marching band is a huge commitment and theater yeah. is a huge commitment. And right. so, you know, again, like uh, for both you and Sean, I mean, there's, it's a lot. Theater is a lot to just mm -hmm. kind of commit yourself to, even if that's your only hobby or interest or profession. So for the high school kids, we have a lot of technical, uh, you know, kids on the technical side of things who are also band kids and, uh, it's they're both huge commitments and trying to wrangle them to be available at the times that we need them can be a challenge but it also makes a lot of sense that those kids wind up in theater because uh, I mean there was one year the marching bands show was I think it, there was music inspired by West Side Story I yeah think they did they, yeah they've done uh, they've had like quite the collection of just various styles of music that they've brought in over the years for their shows. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So it makes sense that they join theater and they wind up getting into it. Um, so I don't fault them. <laughs> right. No, no, I wouldn't yeah. fault them either. It's certainly yeah. a, a good thing to be spread between two different worlds. Yeah. You know, it gives you a lot of exposure. So like Sean said, outside of the theater, uh, you obviously have other hobbies outside of music. You have other hobbies. And Sean's question has to do with one of your other hobbies, non-music related, but artsy still. Mm. Sure. So, so Everett, this question really comes towards your uh, freelance photography, because I, I know that you mentioned that at the end of your bio. Mm. So I really want to talk about this with you. Uh, what or who uh, encouraged you to start doing that uh, for yourself? Um, it was kind of like one of those, uh, I just liked taking photos and my mom wound up buying me for Christmas one year uh, just a DSLR like Nikon camera just a beginner basic camera and at first like going even trying to go back and see some of like my photos when I was like 16 years old they're all not good <laughs> it's like the it's like the kid who thinks that they're being very deep and artsy because they've seen American Beauty and the whole, you know, uh, plastic bag gusting in the wind. And you're like, All right, I'm going to do that. I'm going to take those photos. And so you think taking a picture of a stop sign makes you cool. And like, you know, this really deep photography. Um, and, but yeah, so like I did, a, I took a lot of those types of photos or I went to the beach and would take like, you know, 25 of photos of the same street sign and, you know, try and, envision some sort of world where that would wind up in an art gallery in 10 years <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know evolving uh, theatrical lighting design again like to build a, por a portfolio and when I was applying to colleges I needed to show my lighting design work or any of my design work and show it in photos and you know create a portfolio and then do portfolio reviews for school um, and so I wound up trying to take photos of my own work as those productions were happening um, and uh, compile my portfolio that way. And from there, I wound up really finding an interest in photography and kind of understanding what it means to capture a subject in a certain mood and, you know, what texture, what kind of texture you can create in a two-dimensional photo where, you know, somebody looks at it and says like, wow, like this looks 
interesting. So yeah, that's kind of where I really started with it. And then I wound up getting into photo editing um, like a year, year or two ago was really when I started doing that. And I had downloaded some like cheap photo editing software onto my MacBook and just tried to figure out like, you know, what white, white balance means and contrast and exposure and, you know, highlights, shadows, all that stuff. Um, and I finally, now that I've had a job where I can make some money, I finally got like the Adobe Creative Cloud like a year ago and have just watched YouTube video after YouTube video to improve my photography, improve my editing skills. Is there a photographer that you think of when you're working? Like um, any artist comes out at you when you, when you do your own work? Um, not really, to be honest. And it's not because I don't have uh, an appreciation for, you know, for a lot of like, especially like the YouTubers who are also photographers who showcase their work, show people how to kind of recreate some of their styles and improve their own skills. Um, but I find photography, people get very uh, exclusive about photography sometimes where, you know, your iPhone can take some pretty incredible photos now. Yeah. And I think some people feel sort of exclusive with photography where they feel like, you know, well, because I know how to work a DSLR camera or I know the difference between DSLR and mirrorless or whatever that technology is that it inherently makes you a more refined photographer or that your eye or your art is somehow better. And I, I just, I think it's all cool. I think if somebody can take a really fantastic photo and knows how to do photo editing on their iPhone and not have to touch a computer and they get these really outstanding images, I, I give them a lot of credit. There's, uh, there's actually a kid that I graduated middle school with because I don't think we went to high school together. Um, his name's Jason Agani. We have not talked in years, but I still follow his his photography because he does a lot of nature photography, and it's that's something. Oh, really? That, yeah, that's not something. He did band for years. Yes, I was going to say. I think he did do band. Um, and that's not nature photography is not something at all I'm very good at because trying to find like you know you there's there's so many sunrises and sunsets and trees that I can look at, and I I think they're all beautiful, but he has a way of capturing these really incredible he goes to like national parks and all these things and he captures these really incredible images and i know there's some photo editing involved in that but what he does and how he sees nature i think is incredible so you know people the the art in terms of photography is so open-ended because like yeah you can take a picture of a sunrise or a sunset a thousand people can do that and there's no fault if you're taking it on an iphone or uh you know a dslr camera or whatever it is or a professional you know, camera. It's the same thing with people who get really into film. Like, I think film is incredible. Like, you know, being able to understand you get one shot at taking this photo and know exactly what settings you need to put on the camera to make it work. Um, and I think that's awesome. Some people are like, well, why would you do that if you have that technology before you? It's all just, so I try not to pick favorites with photography because I think if I were to save some person, it would just wind up being like, well, that person, all of their photos look exactly like somebody else's. And it's like, yeah, there's only so many colors and composition and inspiration on its own that you can find. It's when you get into the editing and the designing and people start doing, you know, digital, uh, digital art that you can start to look at the originality and appreciate that. 
Sure. And my I aunt actually, does that. My aunt does. I'm sorry, Sean. No, 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 it's okay, Hunter. My aunt, she went to school for, um, what do they call it? Nuclear medicine, but she really always wanted to do photography and she recently got into doing it. And uh, I'll have to tag you in like one of her pictures or something. Mm. But um, she really enjoyed, well, she prefers the, like the nature aspect of it, but she really mm. enjoys doing exactly what you're talking about, where it's like, you want to capture as much as you can pre-editing mm -hmm. and really only edit what you have to, mm -hmm. you know, and you can alter things if you want a specific look, but really, you know, and she feels the same way. If you can get a good picture with the phone, great. Yeah. 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 Sorry, Sean, go ahead. No, it's okay. Um, Everett, I wanted to ask you, um, now looking past uh, post-COVID years and moving into like maybe 2024, 2025, mm. what would you like people to know about your pictures? Um, I mean, a lot of what I've captured, I would say in the last year or so, has mostly involved people. Um, and, uh, the photography collective, uh, was something that I, my friends and I kind of started, uh, in 2018, like end of 2018. And, uh, we just like basically wound up, uh, we basically wound up deciding that we wanted to, we were calling them lookbooks where essentially we were just trying to pick a theme or a style and take photos of each other, like wearing clothes and, you know, maybe do some editing or whatever it was. And uh, there was one specifically that we were starting this series uh, and obviously coronavirus has kind of uh, halted a lot of that work. <laughs> Gosh on that. <laughs> but uh, we were starting to do um, uh, just like the different types of love. Uh, and so, you know, uh, that was just like a really fun series that we had started to do. And I guess in five, 10 years, whoever would be looking at my photos, I would want them to look at those subjects, look at those photos and get a certain feeling, get a certain vibe uh, and sort of, yeah, just basically that. I, I don't, there's not, there's not too much in terms of this uh, very deep message that I'm trying to send in my photography just yet. I'm sure at some point, maybe I'll come across something that I'm really passionate about that I may want to pursue that with. But for now, it's mostly just feelings, emotions, just wanting people to get an idea. And, and it's through a collection of photos. I, I really don't think you can get a lot all the time out of one photo from a certain photographer. I'm sure you can in certain instances if there's something specific. But on its own, I think a lot of my photos just kind of... Uh, it's like, oh, this is cool. But when you see it together, it's like, now I understand what I'm supposed to be looking at and what I'm supposed to be feeling or thinking. Mm -hmm. Sure. Mm -hmm. And one of my final questions before I let the last one go to Hunter is, I like asking this to all my guests. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, what, if you were going to talk to an artist, composer, producer, author, um, writer, who would it be? Uh, what would you ask them? And what would you go eat or drink with them? Um... Ooh. <laughs> no pressure. No, no, yeah, pressure. no pressure. Yeah. No pressure uh, at all. You just have the span of history to choose from. Exactly. Anyone. Yeah. Historian even. I don't know. Yeah. Honestly, I mean, we can, we're, we're probably, I mean, we're definitely going to talk about this later because uh, uh, he's, his song is one of the songs that I picked for, for my 10 songs. I would probably talk to Mac Miller because like, I think, for, and I'm not going to say too much because we're going to talk about his music later, but, you know, he, like many, there's, there's a handful of artists that when I was in high school that 
my friends and I just literally listen to on on repeat like every single day after school and even sometimes in in between the hallways and because of that like you know his presence in my life kind of felt like I was growing up with him in a way and as he evolved through his music so just being able to like sit down with him and understand his evolution through his artistry and you know kind of where he started in his career to you know his last album swimming and just his sound his lyricism and just kind of get to get to have a conversation with him because I just feel like I did kind of grow up with his music when I was you know in high school into college into now sure so what would you ask him and what would you eat with him um I would probably ooh, if I were to eat with him I probably would just get like Popeyes or something I love <laughs> Popeyes like Popeyes is like my guilty pleasure food so I probably would just I feel like that would be the the food I would go for nothing elaborate just just some good fried chicken and some biscuits uh asking him I probably would just ask him like about his, especially his, his two albums. Well, actually that's, no, let me think about this. Watching movies with the sound off, I'd probably ask him about his process putting, uh, putting that album together. I just thought that like that album specifically always stood out to me as like my favorite Mac Miller album. So I would just definitely ask him about his, his musical process and his lyrical process as he was doing that. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. Uh, and then I'm going to send the last question over to Hunter. All right. Well, speaking of musical lyrical process, um, you had quite the time picking these 10 songs. <laughs> and uh, I don't think Sean knows how complicated a process this was for you. Uh, but why did you have, what was so difficult about it? Why did you have such a hard time whittling your list down from whatever the exorbitant number was at first? <laughs> yeah, I mean... I mean, I feel like because music, music has just kind of come into my life in so many different facets between musical theater, uh, you know, we didn't really talk about it too much, but like my, and we will probably later, uh, my, my uh, lighting design through dance and like all the dance studios that I've done like showcases for and performances for. And then just like music as it's encountered me just in my own personal life. And yeah. so there's so many songs and so many artists outside of this list of 10 that stand out to me as uh, music that was meaningful to me in some way, or that I just, you know, really found a connection with. And mm -hmm. um, it also doesn't help that I think I'm very open-minded to almost every single genre of music. There's very little that I listen to besides that one song that Brett included. Uh, <laughs> oh God, that one, that was special. <laughs> there's very few, there's very uh, few genres that I won't sample and listen to and find enjoyment out of. Like even, you know, like I don't really like watch a lot of anime, but my friends do. And like some of the intros or like outros to anime like uh, shows is uh, like, I think that that music sometimes like really bops. Like there's yeah. uh, uh what's that group, uh, baby metal or whatever it is, where it's like those <laughs> Japanese girls. I could be getting this wrong. They may be, I don't know if they're K-pop or J-pop, but it's like some sort of Asian female group that does like pop meets metal, like heavy metal. And uh, honestly, like the music isn't that bad to me. I find enjoyment out of most music. I, I mm -hmm. really do. So 
it's just like music has been like a continued soundtrack throughout my entire life like trying to just pinpoint 10 songs to talk about is so difficult because there's there's so much to talk about in music as you guys have probably learned as per you putting this podcast together so mm-hmm. yeah no you're completely yeah. right I mean I'd say that's a very sound very very sound succinct uh, reasoning behind it and you're right you know everyone who comes on says similar they've had they had such a difficult time because like you said so vast you know it's like an ocean of music yeah. and so many different genres so many different artists and even you know when I put mine together I was doing when I was Sean's guest. Mm. I was podcast number two. We had to pick five. Just five songs. Yeah, five <laughs> songs. And so now I'm sitting there. I'm like, mother of God, what am I supposed to? So I had a I had a difficult time too. And thinking back on it, I'm like, if I was, to, I could easily pick five more. That I'm like, I would have added those. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's ever people hated me. They were like, people hated me. They're like, why are you only asking for five songs? I can go like 70 songs. I'm like, well, I don't have that much time. I don't think you'd like <laughs> yeah. to do that much time either. Yeah. I but mean, I'm so glad that you gave me 10 songs. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, like, like even trying to like pick five songs is I think really difficult for people because, because the fact that most people who, who have an appreciation for music and really have a connection towards music trying to pick five songs, I think, minimizes a lot of the, uh, you know, variation for people who, mm-hmm. for like my, like myself, who listen to so many genres of music over so many decades. It's like, I couldn't even, I, honestly, I could probably pick like one album and talk about one album before I could pick like 10 distinct songs to talk about. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's funny, people have, you know, they've expressed that same sentiment and other people have also expressed the sentiment in conjunction with that, how it was an interesting process because having to think that hard about why I'm going to pick these 10 songs really made them think about like exactly that. Why am I picking these? What Mm -hmm. significance do they have to me? Mm -hmm. You know, why do I hold them in a high enough regard that I'm choosing these 10? Mm -hmm. So you know, I, that's sort of also the hope I think is to get people to think more about what they're listening to, not just listen to it mindlessly, which is unfortunately mm-hmm. what we do sometimes just because mm-hmm. we can. Yeah. You know what I mean, so on that note, we're going to take a quick break. Okay. And then we're going to come back and we're going to go through the first five of your 10 songs. Fantastic. Sound good. All right. We'll be right back. back so we have the first five songs of everett's playlist everett the first song on your playlist is the cell block tango from chicago but not the original production you have specifically the um what was it 1990s revival i believe mm-hmm. when uh, bb newworth was it uh, the the star of the show um and i think the original joe i think joel gray was billy flynn I think so. Um, and, you know, it's a classic number, very iconic. You know, the, everyone knows the silhouette of this number in particular, the Subblock Tango. Uh, and this, people don't realize, but this particular production is the reason they made the movie because it revived interest in the show. 
Uh, did you get a chance to, I, I might still be running, I believe. I think it's the like longest current running show next to Phantom, but did you get to see this production? Yeah, I did actually. Uh, so this, uh, this production, Trumbull High School, you know, the, the school that I work with, the high school kids with, um, we wound up doing Chicago, the high school edition, uh, spring of 2019. So last year, um, which was, I think they had just put out the high school edition like the year prior. So the high school edition of Chicago was very new at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did a, uh, like a thespians trip to go see it, uh, in New York and they had asked me if I had wanted to come. And so I did go see it with the kids and it was very surprising what that interpretation of the show is like for anybody who has seen the, the more recent Broadway production of it. Um, I could be getting some of my facts wrong here. Uh, my understanding is that they revived it um, from like a workshop reading and like the way that it was presented was very minimalistic and more so conceptual than it was literal. Um, So like, you know, for, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with the fact that like the costumes, like they, I'm pretty sure people, all the background dancers, especially basically wear the same costume the whole show. And it's just like black fishnets sort of somewhat sensual esque style costumes and there's very minimal set the bands on stage the whole nine yards it's interesting and i found some appreciation for those those design choices and the concept of it but it's the way it's presented on broadway makes some of the storytelling seem very bizarre like chicago is it's it's campy you know it's it's funny it's yeah but it's just also very strange. There were some design choices that I kind of walked away with and I was like, this show is very weird and not in a good way. <laughs> like there's a point in the, in the courtroom scene at the end where they like, and I, maybe it's me not understanding the design. So this is not me being critical of the designers and what they chose to do, but more so just not getting it. There's a point in the courtroom scene where uh, there's this row of lights that kind of just like falls from the ceiling and the actors like stand in front of it and the lights are shooting up towards the ceiling and it just made no sense to me. It made the courtroom scene even more bizarre and not enjoyable than it already is because that's like my least favorite part of the show is the courtroom scene. Mm-hmm. Um, like the pacing of the courtroom scene is just not it's just not good. And the Broadway version just made it really like not palatable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I hate to, I hate to do that. I hate to say that, but it's true. But anyway, I chose uh, cell block tango. Yeah. That was my is, next question. Yeah. Because it is so iconic. Um, and when we did do that, the, the production that I did with the high school, that those design choices that we went with, I think were so far from what you would expect having either seen the Broadway production or just other productions of it. And I liked that we went very different. Like it was very saturated, but we didn't incorporate red at all in the number. It was all blues and purples and sort of, Mm -hmm. uh, we tried to find a bridge between sensuality and sort of the atmosphere of being in a prison. Like we didn't want it to be, so stereotypically well Cold. yeah it's like it's red it's murder you know i, I feel not like, a bloodbath yeah like i feel like that's and maybe again this is just me 
my, I feel like my lighting design sometimes is very pushing it because some people would look at that and say, how could you not do red for cell block tango? But it's like, it just seems very played and like, you know, catchy. Like, you know, you're just trying to grab the audience and be like, haha, they're murderers. Let's put some red on stage. <laughs> like you could be a little more creative. And when we chose our design elements, you know, we decided to uh, for Roxy's character, a lot of her lighting design was centered around uh, being the absence of color and sort of that old school black and white uh, style where Roxy buys into a lot of that drama and wanting to be a star. And she, she sees like what that era has kind of created for her and she buys into it versus Velma who we made her palette very saturated because she's smarter than that. You know, she understands like the drama of, you know, us being murderers, but also, you know, we're selling a story to the news and, you know, it's not really about us being bad people. It's just whether, you know, people like us or not, you know, they don't right. care if we've murdered people, they just have to like us in order for us to get off like, you know, with this crime. And so she kind of knows better and she's, you know, wise in that sense that she's not doing it because she really, she buys into the idea, but more so it's, well, this is my job and this is my reality. And if I, I want to get away with it. Yeah. So, you know, for her, her palette was very saturated. And so cell block tango is like a lot of these women, like they're like Velma, like it should be very saturated, but it shouldn't just be let's throw some red on stage. It's like, no, they're in a prison. These women are cold. They're cold and they understand the consequences of their actions. And it is very moody. It's not, this song shouldn't be high, especially in a high school setting. I was worried about making it sexual also by yeah. incorporating a lot of red and oranges and ambers and making it very warm in that way. So yeah, we took it in a different direction and I just really... I really fell in love with that number, I'd say more so out of any other number in that show. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, uh, it is a tricky show to do, you know, it, it's the high school version, but it does inherent, it is inherently, you know, adult in context. So you want to keep the gravitas of the scene without, uh, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to diminish the power of the scene, mm. but you also, like you said, you don't want to emphasize the wrong parts of it. I mean, we know the debacle that we had with Rent. Mm. And um, that was, I think, less overtly controversial. Like, people heard Rent, they thought controversy. But when you watch it, like the high school version, it's not quite, I think, as in your face. At least I've never, I didn't think that way. Whereas, you know, very obvious Chicago, it's murder. Mm. Like, everyone knows that. It's about women murderesses. Mm. That's the concept. And it's them trying to get away with it. Yeah. So yeah, I feel like choices, like you said, lighting design really help to sell the, not the validity, but like help to sell that, like their kids doing it, but there's a message here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, yeah, we, you're, you always have that, I think in a high school setting where you want to toe the line between the message of the show and this like whatever story the show is telling while also keeping it appropriate and also educational like mm -hmm. I think one thing that people who aren't into theater forget about some of these productions is that like yeah on the surface Chicago is talking about 
murder or, you know, that's kind of like the, the, like one of the major themes of the show is these women who have just like all killed the men that they were with. But it's also like, it's a period piece and very much. Yes. You know, and uh, it, there's, there's an educational element to that as much as people may not want, want to acknowledge that or may not realize that is that a lot of times these shows get picked because Chicago is very timeless. Like so many yes. people know Chicago and you know, the era that the show is set in, the style of the show, the choreography, how iconic the original choreography of the show was. Like, those are all things that I think are absolutely things that students should learn and should see and should know and understand. So yeah, the show's about murder, but if you don't play up that or you don't play up the sexuality to a point where it's offensive, I think it's, a, it's still a cool show to do as problematic as some of that storytelling just in terms of pacing is. The, the yeah. show's still definitely a show I would encourage high schools to do. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, sort of helps to have lots of female dancers. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or I guess maybe you could uh, swap some roles and put a lot, if you have a very strong male dancer cast, you could throw some boys into the cell block tango. <laughs> I, I guess you could, yeah. Um, they're the dancing dead husbands. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so staying on the topic of theater, but going back about, you know, two decades or so, um, from that particular production, Sean. So Hunter, I actually think we might be leaping a little bit forward with this one because I think the version Everett that you wanted to talk about was actually a, um, they redid this, right? Oh yes, that's right. Yeah, it was I think this is the, 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 I think, right. Or 2000, right, right. And early I, 2000s, somewhere in that range. Never mind. Jump right. ahead 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> So I think you're right, Hunter. The show I think did come around 1969, and then this show uh, is 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 now the 59. Thank you, and is now back on Broadway. You okay. know, still and, and um, a lot of I heard a lot of like older people say about this new production. Oh, it's different. You know, it's not the same as it used to be. But I mean it's not about the music it's about the message right mm. what do you want to say about the message of the song yeah i mean so the 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 production in general uh like west side story it's it's still a message that i think rings true today like there's so many things about the racial elements of that show that people are still like conversations about race relations are still happening in 2020 and because of that there this is sort of a show that does kind of stick out to me because in in the themes and the topics it is absolutely timeless where so, like something that did come out in the 60s people are still having these conversations now and while the races may change or some of the like the location you know it may not we're, it may not be talking about new york anymore like it's sure it's just a show that I think will always stand out to me because like our grandparents and our parents grew up on West Side Story and enjoyed West Side Story. We now are like now that it is back on Broadway, there's probably the next wave of theater students and there's going to be a movie that's coming out that I think Steven Spielberg is directing. Yep. So it's like you have this next wave of theater, theater kids and just like kids in general who are going to have exposure to West Side Story and say like, oh, wow, like this 
I get it. Like this is still happening. Like we're still talking about this and I find it, I find it relatable. And yeah. So like in that sense, I just think the show itself is just very, it's very topical. Like I think people can, can talk about West Side Story and be like, wow, I, I, I still get it. I still know exactly what the show is trying to say. Sure. And Hunter was going to mention to me the song in question that we're going to talk about is One Hand, One Heart mm-hmm. from West Side Story. And the version that you gave me was from uh, Matt Cavanaugh and Josefina Scaglione. I think I said, hopefully I said that right. Um, th- this number can be a very delicate scene. I think it really plays to um, the idea of two people coming from different backgrounds. Um, it plays off like we've, we've maybe I've talked about this dealing with Romeo and Juliet mm-hmm. talking about how two people from different backgrounds, uh, although they're, they're, you know, their families may disagree or like their culture may disagree with one another, but they still find a way to be with each other, which I think is such a beautiful message. And I think that sort of plays into the song a little bit. Do you want to talk about the song? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean this, uh, I very re- like last summer I had we had done West Side Story with uh, Trumbull Youth Association um, and I had had exposure to West Side Story before that um, but this was I think the first time that I really sat down and listened to a lot of the music before I went into the production. Um, you know some productions I go into and I'll listen through as I'm reading the script making notes about lighting I'll sit down in the production meeting but it's not until we get into the production process that I've really listened I really start to listen to the music West Side Story the second I knew we were doing it I had like listened to and fell in love with a lot of the music involved and this song in particular One Hand One Heart it, it is very delicate. You, you really hit it on the, on the head in that sense where listening to it, it's, you know, it is teen, you're in the show, it's talking about teenagers basically too. And I guess like thinking back to my adolescence, even now as like I'm in my early twenties, I just think the, the message is, it has nothing to do with their age. It has nothing to do with their race or anything it's really just about the fact that there's two people who deeply care about one another and envision a world where they can just love each other for who they are without all of this chaos that surrounds them and seeing that that kind of play out live for the first time when i did it last year um it was very meaningful kind of seeing that play out seeing it staged and as the song ends where it is in the production, there is that, I think in some productions it's clarinet and other productions it's a flute player or a strings player, but whatever it is where it kind of, as the song sort of fades out and you sort of fade to black, so to speak, it, there's that sense of like foreshadowing and unease where you've just listened to this really delicate song. You see this very tender moment happen between these characters. And then as they kind of embrace, there's this, sort of undertone within the music and there's just so much that in in the playing in the in the music that you get out of that song i don't know i just i just find it to be very uh very beautiful so and i think it's interesting because you mentioned that this sort of like overwhelming sense of of sound i want to mention this to our listeners um that the thing that you're mentioning is um, it's interesting because you mentioned the clarinet and you mentioned the violin 
And right at the end, you hear the ba da ba da and you sort of assume that something has sort of sort of happened. Mm-hmm. And then at, at that moment in time, then you hear the ba I think it's, mm-hmm. so, and then you're right. You, you hit it right on the head. You said there is that sort of like dismay. You say, mm-hmm. oh, something bad's going to happen here. Here we go. Mm-hmm. But, you, but you know, I think, I think this is a really picturesque moment mm-hmm. in theater history. And you mentioned, you, you also nailed that on the head. The, 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 the theme of it is also so simple. Mm-hmm. It's two people. They want to be together forever. And they just love each other. I think mm-hmm. it's just, it's a, it's a beautiful message. Is there anything else you want to talk about the song? Yeah, no, I mean like the, the, just like the ending of that, like having, when I started to kind of like listen through one hand, one heart a lot. And I was just kind of like, cause I'll play each song kind of on repeat as I'm, as I'm doing my lighting design for shows and like sometimes i'll listen to a song like probably like 50 to 100 times just trying to get each distinct note change you know whatever it is to see where in that we can incorporate a design element and that part at the end just absolutely stands out to me because of the subtlety of it there's definitely so many musicals where there's points where there's something that shifts in the song and there is that sense of like foreboding or i don't know what's coming but it's so it's so short and it's so simple but it speaks like to me it speaks volumes i guess maybe because i listened to it so much but like when we did the production we had decided kind of late in the game but we decided like right before we opened to change how we fade it to black when there's mm. we have these two characters embracing we had this sort of like soft pink atmosphere going on and uh we kind of created this uh uh, like uh, gradient essentially where you have this red sort of like coming up and then it kind of comes back down as you're fading to black where like it seems it seems so simple but to not call attention to that that part of that song felt like a disservice to just fade to black and be like oh the the song's over onto what like the tonight quintet I think is what comes next mm-hmm. so yeah. So like we, ha- I, that was something where I was like, we have to do something in the lighting design to really call how subtle, but incredible that, that point in the music is. Right. And I want to mention you actually played in the pit for that show and mm-hmm. that was just, just great. And um, as you know, Leonard Bernstein is a genius. I think his writing is incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's something worth noting because when you think about it, his writing can be so complicated. Mm-hmm. And but yet also, like we mentioned with this song, it's just so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And you get this complicated versus this natural sort of writing that you get. And you really come out with like the, the best product. And I have to say, this is actually my favorite musical. I'm not yeah. sure if it's yours. Is it your favorite musical? So my... Uh... My top five at this moment in time, in no particular order, would be West Side Story. Uh, I still have an appreciation for Rent, even though I do find uh, its its narrative somewhat choppy. Like, I think some of, I mean, Rent is very iconic, but I can also say that narratively it's a little all over the place. Um, but yeah, so I'd say West Side Story, Rent, um, I really, really, really love the musical Waitress as like a more mm. modern musical that I've gotten oh, yeah. into. Um, yeah. 
I, like there, I got, I was lucky enough to go see it and I just, I loved it. I loved the music. Um, and then I would say Into the Woods is definitely one that's in my top five. And <laughs> Hunter's really happy because we're actually doing a deep dive on Into the Woods tomorrow. That's incredible. I, yeah. I, I was a Guilford High School theater arts. Um, I got to do Into the Woods with them this year. Unfortunately, we never got to, to open it because of COVID, but mm. doing Trying it, I wrong. felt... Yeah, like, yeah, I mean, doing it, I got to fall in love with that music. I love Into the Woods. I think it's such a cool musical. It's such a cool concept. It has great songs. Like, it's, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, I would say five. Ooh. Uh, Spring Awakening. Yeah, Spring Awakening would be five. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's funny that you, you mentioned Stephen Sondheim at the top of the show because he also wrote the lyrics to... West Side Story. I think yes, it's, yes. it's so interesting about that too. I think the tandem of those together, and there's a really funny story I want to just sort of briefly mention with West Side Story is that um, Stephen Sondheim did this, um, I think, per, per bonum, I think. He just did it for free. Mm-hmm. And Leonard Bernstein's like, are you sure? I mean, this is going to be a big thing. And Stephen Sondheim's like, yeah, whatever. I can do whatever. And now looking back at it, he's like, oh, crap. I should have got something from West Side Story. <laughs> Yeah, so no, I think I'm, it's interesting. He got his yeah, name. Yeah, I was gonna say, like, I mean, that I kind of like intentionally brought up Sotheim because, like, you you think about his career, and you know, I, even myself, like, how much I've grown to appreciate the musicals that he's written and like appreciate mm. his lyricism, um, and not having known who he was for so much of my life, it's like, well, it makes sense, but it's also kind of incredible that now, like, so many years later. It's like how could how can I not love his music? How can I not appreciate his writing? So right, sure. yeah. And so on that note, I am gonna switch gears because I know we want to really get into the next one with uh, Liam Michelle, Jonathan Groff, and John Gallagher. So I will jump the ship back over to Hunter. All right. Well, it was actually fortuitous that you mentioned Spring Awakening being your um, top five because, as I recall, this is from that show, is it not? Yes. And, um, you know, it, it's not the world's most uplifting show, and I can't say I'm a particular <laughs> fan of it, but uh, then again, there are, you know, West Side Story is not that uplifting either. Um, though, although Into the Woods isn't either. So I guess there's a running <laughs> theme here. <laughs> I, it's sort of a bittersweet ending. But anyway, um, you know, this show, it speaks to a great many people, you know, and this song is a high really emotional one, um, especially in the context of the play. Um, and I imagine your connection is not quite the same uh, to what's happening specifically in the show, but the message of the song is so applicable to many situations. Uh, what do you think that message is and what is your connection to the song? Um, kind of going backwards on those questions, like my connection to the song like I discovered Spring Awakening because I was a fan of Glee and like yeah. I found out that Leah Michelle was like in a Broadway musical and Jonathan Groff was in it too. And it's like, OMG, like, you know, these characters that I watch on Glee when I'm like 13 years old or like we're in a musical. And so like, you know, I had watched Glee uh, and I discovered Spring Awakening around the time that I got into theater. Like up until that point, my, the only musicals that I knew were the ones that I had done 
as a part of high school or like the very popular ones. Like I knew the Lion King was on Broadway, obviously. <laughs> yeah. And like I had heard of Wicked because Wicked was, you know, at that point, Wicked, I think was like the modern musical that everybody was into that. It was like, you need to go see. It was, Wicked. it was sort of the preeminent. Yes. So, you know, I knew of Lion King, I knew of Wicked, and then I knew what my high school productions were doing. But when I was like 15, 16, I finally started to kind of discover musicals on my own. And having been interested in Glee and watching Glee for way too many years, um, I, you know, found out, oh, Leah Michelle was in this musical, uh, you know, what was it about? And so I started listening to the music, not having seen any of the show but just like hearing the music and there's something about this song those you've known kind of they don't it's not the last show like song of the show but it's the second to last song and you've got uh you've just got like i don't know there's just something about the like the lyricism where you've got these characters who have passed away who are kind of basically telling him hey like we're we're not gone like we're not going to we're not leaving you just because we're dead which sounds like like an odd thing to say but they kind of their legacy in his life will live on and they will continue to live on in spirit which for a show that's very depressing it is kind of a comforting <laughs> message <laughs> certainly not uh not helped by the fact that these are all what are they teenagers or yeah late high school early college i forget what i forget what they are yeah you know, they're, it's it doesn't it doesn't instill the most confidence in our younger generation what yeah 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 no i mean they are high schoolers and like yeah. you know the again straight like now that i'm thinking about it like entertainment's fascination with telling like stories about high schoolers overcoming hardship and that sort of deep coming of age where it's like people die <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> like <laughs> we're talking about west side story now we're talking about uh spring awakening but yeah no i mean like it's it's a very depressing... oh when you were carrie and we're golden yeah i mean it's a very depressing show in in some ways because these characters i i was lucky enough years later 2015 to have seen the deaf west production of spring awakening where they had a mixed cast of, uh, of, I think, like, hearing impaired people. So, like, in the cast and people who could speak and sing. And the way that they chose to cast who was deaf and who wasn't, I'm pretty, like, the way that I interpreted it was the deaf characters were all the characters that felt voiceless. And, um, mm -hmm. and you know, it brought on a whole new meaning, especially to this song, especially to those you've known, because the characters that the two characters that die are the characters that were cast as like deaf actors. And mm. so it's like they never got a chance to to have their voice, you know, the characters uh, didn't. So it's just, it's just a show that I think stands out to me because it is so deep. And when I first heard it, I really didn't understand a lot of the messages that the show was telling me besides the surface level of like, oh, so-and-so gets a botched abortion or like so-and-so, you know, spoiler alert, kills himself. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't use a name, so nobody will know, nobody will know who it is. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, like, it's so deep and like on the surface, like I get it, but then you kind of, as I've gotten older, it's like, oh my God, like the, the, this is, 
this is about like, you know, an entire generation of kids whose parents won't be honest with them and their teachers. And it's all about just kind of covering up, uh, you know, that budding adolescence into adulthood where we want to just kind of keep you innocent. And in the process, you kind of unravel yourself where like you kind of fall apart and, it yeah it like so this song specifically it's like it's sort of the only uplifting moment to me of the show <laughs> yeah i mean it's, it's certainly not a production that you would recommend for a high school to perform Never. um Never. i remember um, <laughs> i remember the music music director for the trumbull high shows was talking about you know what they were thinking about and someone suggested to him that and he was like Oh, no, 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 no. He's like, that's not going to happen. Well, like, you know, Spring Awakening, it's as as great of a show as I find it to be. Like, and I actually wound up doing it with, uh, years ago, uh, Broadway Method Academy, when they were still out of uh, Performing Arts Center of Connecticut. Um, they did a production of Spring mm -hmm. Awakening. And there's, even if you try and water it down, like the end of act one, they're simulating a sex scene. Like you're simulating sex on stage. Like it, I, I can't imagine in a high school, like in an actual high school outside of community theater, like in a high school setting doing that. I know high schools do spring awakening, but it's just like, there's a comfort level to certain things. And mm -hmm. when you have like 16 year old kids on stage, like in, in engaging in that, it's not trying to like hush, hush, quiet the fact that these things exist, but more so like you have a whole audience full of people and when they're 18, 19, 20 years old, fine. But like when they're 15, 16 years old, maybe there's other productions that we can send a message about these things without doing that personally. Right. Which is ironic because, you know, I, I hate to say this, obviously being an educator, but like, I mean, that is often what not, I don't want to say it's common, but like that does often happen with mm. 15, 16 year olds. And, you know, when you watch like a, a TV show or a movie or something and you have like 10 year olds or 12 year olds who are like swearing up and down using like every four letter word under the sun, and people get so unnerved by it, you say, well, you've clearly never been in a school before because yeah. I hate to tell you that's how they talk. You know, it's like, it's uncomfortable. Mm. And there, you would think you'd want to bring awareness to that, but right, then when you're watching like a stage production or a movie or a TV show, you're like, I don't want to watch that. It's, yeah. it's, it's very off-putting. Yeah, so and, it's like, it's, it has nothing to do with the fact that, like, I think a lot of those topics certainly in Spring Awakening, it certainly speaks to a lot of kids in high school and lyrically uh the show there's a lot of parts of that show that I think people like high school kids specifically at least when I was in high school that did speak to me and I was like wow like you know uh outside of those you've known um you know the dark I know well was like another song that for like the I, I kind of like felt a connection to in the sense that like you realize people are going through things in life that are much more adult than maybe the world has let on. So not necessarily connecting to it in my own personal experience, but connecting to it in the message it was sending and saying like, wow, like, you know, I, I am 16, 17 years old. I'm hearing these things. And it's like, wow, there's a lot in this world that people are kind of sheltering me from because of my age that are real things that people may or may not go through, um, which is very, you know, 
complicated. You know, you realize like you're 17 years old or whatever, and you have a friend who may be going through depression, or you have a friend that may be going through some, something really, you know, traumatizing. And in that sense, I think it's a show that teenagers may find a connection to because it's like, wow, this show is really talking about a lot of things that my parents won't talk about with me, but I can find like solace in the fact that there's music out there that speaks to me that way. Yeah, no, it, it, it can definitely be powerful in that way. Um, but those messages show up in other things, right? Not just in musicals and, you know, the, the deep connections can be uh, found in other genres of music. And Sean, I know we'll be asking you about a song that seems to have that level of connection. Sure, I, I think that's sort of a great segue because the song in question is uh, Rivers and Roads, that's the name of the the uh, name of the song and the name of the band is the head and the heart um Everett, i really like the song i thought there was a lot of a lot good that was like happening in the song i thought there was mm. a really good groove the message of the song was great i felt like it was definitely speaking to me in a way like um in a way the words rivers and roads sort of signal um ways of traveling and I think that's something that the song sort of conveys, like not everything stays the same. Things change. People move away. Um, and it, it may sound depressing in a, in a way, like you you sort of lose people. Like you, you don't really see the same people you do. But I think, I think the song sort of carries the connection, I think. I think, and we talked about this with communication too. I think when you have this sort of like connection, I think you can sort of still have that. But I think in this song, it sort of conveys the feeling of disconnection. Mm. Yeah, I mean, uh, Rivers and Roads is one of those songs that has, like, there's a few songs on this list, but this one definitely has encountered me at several points in my life. Um, the first time I ever heard the song was through working uh, a dance studio showcase. Um, now, formerly Performing Arts Center of Connecticut, now Rockwell Dance Center, and I still work with them today, but at the time I wasn't even like the lighting designer for them or anything. I was just like a student that like helped them out every once in a while. Um, and it was this, they did like a company piece with it. And I remember distinctly the director um, saying that she wanted the lighting design to look like a Levi's commercial and have that sort of uh, like warmth to it. And it was mm. a very like, it was a very fun number. Like there was a point where the kids basically were kind of like just jumping and stomping around on stage and it was very freeing. And as much as depressing as you can take those lyrics, like because I had that introduction with that song that way, it made me see a sense of content about it where like the way I kind of interpreted it, it was like as much as people move away, as much as, as far as you may go from one another, if there is that connection, you know, you will travel through rivers and roads to, to find that person again, mm. if needed. And, um, and so like, that was like the first time I really heard that song. And that actually was kind of, I think the first song that made me fall in love with lighting design in, in the dance world. And yeah, so like it, it that that was like it, it was just a very it was a very meaningful song to me, and then I kind of encountered it again a few years later as I was graduating high school, and uh, you know all of my friends and I were now kind of facing 
that sense of everybody's moving away. We're all not going to be, you know, a five minute drive away from each other anymore, but are we willing to make that friendship work in that connection sort of last? And that's something that actually did wind up happening. Like my, a lot of my friends that I was friends with in high school, we still keep in contact and we still talk to each other. There's like a group of like 10 of us and we still talk and see each other and celebrate holidays. And, you know, Rivers and Roads message wound up being very true for me. So I found that, I found comfort in that where it's like, wow, like the son that's kind of followed me throughout my life in a way, the message made sense and the message stuck with me and it worked out. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I think there's sort of a beauty to acoustic guitar playing in this mm-hmm. song. I think there's just, I mean, I think I've talked to many guests about this, but listening to solo guitar and duet voice or solo voice can be such a powerful thing. And it can also be kind of scary because it's just you. It's just one person with one instrument. And I think that's it's sort of like, I think, I think you talked about it a little bit, but the vulnerability of it in a way, like you sort of like feel that like, that issue of being alone mm-hmm. but you know that when the when the other voice comes in like when when it, when it comes into the song i felt like at that point then you know there might be a connection that you still have mm-hmm. yeah yeah no i mean i uh in october i actually because i really the head and the heart i really like a lot of their music so i got to see them perform rivers and roads live and the it is very vulnerable it's very uh it kind of resonates with you, even though it's very simple, like there, it doesn't need this sort of grand band moment with all these instruments and all this noise for it to like, it's, it resonates with you with so in a sense, so little, like, you know, you have these harmonies, you have the guitar, you have like a little bit of percussion, but it's just, yeah, I think it's, I think that's incredible when an artist can do that. And so I would say this song has just always stood out to me because of that. And I think it's so cool. I want to mention this so quickly, but each song that now we're talking about, I always find how interesting it is where the connection lies with you due to a project that you're working on. Mm-hmm. That's so that's so interesting. I'm so glad that you 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 talked about that because I think every song from from now, I think you've mentioned that you've had a connection with in that way. I, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean the. I kind of mentioned this early on, I think like, I, I personally feel like music encounters you. And I, as much as I may have, there's going to be a, there's going to be other songs that we talk about too, that I've kind of come across in, in work or something like that, where even if I knew the song before I came into work, there's always something about it that sticks out to me. And I just find it so, uh, I find it so fascinating that in this line of work, even outside of just musicals, but entertainment in general with especially the dance studio stuff, there's so many songs that I either knew beforehand that all of a sudden we're doing it as it is like now I'm lighting design for it or uh, the other happens where there's so many things from dance studios, especially that there's music that they've brought in that they're like, Hey, we want to do this. Never heard the song before. And then it becomes a song that I can't stop listening to. And then I start listening to that artist and it then becomes integral to my personal life. So it's, it's, it's always evolving. I think music is just always a part of you. And for me particularly, I kind of need to celebrate the fact that I have that crossover where it's in my work life, but it's also in my personal life. I can't 
try and make a separation without closing myself off to like a lot of music, you know? Right. And I'm so excited to introduce this next song because I love this band so much. I don't know why Hunter keeps getting all the good songs. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. All, all your songs have been great so far. But this one in particular, I've, I've, I've had such an affinity for and the band. They're incredible. I'm so excited for Hunter to talk about it. So Hunter, please take it away. Wait, Hunter. Sure thing. I was muted. I was talking to myself. <laughs> um, so... Uh, feel free to jump in at any time, Sean. Uh, but the next song is called Nina Cried Power by Hosier featuring Mavis Staples. And I hope I said those names all correctly. Um, again, not somebody or, or a band that I'm familiar with. Uh, where did you first hear the song? Um, so I actually, uh, with Hosier, I had listened to his music because this was see that's what i thought i thought it was hosier and gabby said no i could be getting it wrong listen i whoever whatever you choose to pronounce it as (laughs) she's standing at the window to the door right now and i'm (laughs) pointing at her saying you're wrong (laughs) um yeah i mean it whatever you want to pronounce it as i think it's i don't even think that's his real first name um so i i don't i yeah i don't know so anyway um I came across his music uh, when I was a sophomore in high school, junior in high school. His, like, he had a hit single, Take Me to Church, um, which became very popular. And the message of that song was essentially about how uh, your sexuality, your identity should not forbid you from loving somebody else. And he kind of like compared loving someone to religion. Um, and it was, it was, uh, especially talking about like the LGBT community and their love, whatever. And I, I found a lot of connection in that song and just the message. And I also just very liked his vibe and his sound. Um, mm-hmm. And then two years ago, I would say, is I think when I first heard this song, uh, Nina Cried Power, and it's, uh, it's message about, uh, it's kind of, I think, like a celebration or an appreciation towards protests, like other songs that were kind of written in some sort of protest. And um, mm-hmm. he, like he mentions in the song, like, you know, it's, it's called Nina Cried Power, like the Nina in reference is Nina Simone. Yeah, and, Nina he, Simone. and he mentions uh, uh, like Billie Holiday, Curtis Mayfield, uh, I think John Lennon, like a lot of just like really iconic uh, people uh, throughout music who wrote songs that in some sense were a perhaps a protest towards something or topical in some sort of injustice and he like I think it's just kind of like a celebration for that and so like the first time I heard it was like two years ago just having had listened to some of his other music I came across like you know he had put out new music but then it came up again in work um, I was doing, uh, I was uh, working with Leland Dance Studio out of Milford for their recital, and uh, one of the songs that they did was Nina Cried Power, and the way that uh, they chose to do the choreography for that, just the the politics of it all really stood out to me in a very meaningful way, and it kind of created like this resurgence of love for the song like a year later, so Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, well, you sort of answered my next question. You know, Nina Simone, 
obviously, you know, she was a black artist back in uh, the, the, the jazz days, as they say. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, her and Billie Holiday, too. Two big figures in the uh, female vocal world, um, both of whom were black and both, you know, had issues in their life with civil rights and, you know, mm-hmm. inequality. Uh, both massive figures for the fact that, like, you know, black artists could succeed in the music business. Like, there was, there was definitely, like, hope that they gave to other up-and-coming artists. Um, it's funny, you mentioned, like, protest music. It's funny how a lot of music we don't think about, like you said, Lennon. Um, even the bossa nova, like the song La Garota de Ipanema, which is, you know, Girl from Ipanema. Uh, the bossa nova was written as protest music. So, I mean, it, it can be in all shapes and forms. Mm-hmm. So... Um, Anything else about that particular song? Yeah, I mean, um, I actually uh, wrote down a a quote from Hozier in talking about the song, um, because like he does say, it basically is a thank you note to the legacy of artists from the 20th century, whose Mm -hmm. work still inspires us and whose well we draw from uh, in times of uncertainty. And I just like, I find, I find that really beautiful because I think people sometimes forget how, and I say this term loosely, but how political music can be and that sort of, uh, it, it isn't just about like, oh, this vibe sounds really good because as much as I love to just listen to music for the vibe, lyrically artists have, there's so much poetry and so much meaning in what they say and how they say it. and how they choose to present themselves and what they talk about that it's kind of it's incredible like you know when he does list a lot of the artists that he does throughout the song um you know the things that those artists went through and the type of music that they were putting out and conversationally you know what that kind of inspired like I think he mentions Bob Dylan and Bob Dylan certainly was at one point, like I pretty much, he was kind of like the face for uh, like the anti-war movement within folk music, you know? So like, it's just, uh, it's, I just like find that, that aspect of music in this song in particular, very interesting. Yeah, it is. And you know, it, it's important to bring attention to that, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm glad you did. So thank you for that. Uh, We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to come back with the second half of your song, so the other five. Um, But before we go on break, it uh, it would behoove us all to mention that uh, your songs that you chose can be found on a playlist that we're going to attach to this episode. So if anyone is interested in listening to the songs that we've been talking about, uh, they can listen to that playlist. Uh, Also... Uh, music speaks is uh, we can be found on Twitter, with it, which is at music speaks underscore pod, and on Instagram um, music speaks underscore podcast. So you can go check us out there. All right, we'll be right back. All right, we're back with Everett, and Everett, the next song in your playlist is Self Care from uh, Mac Miller's albums, um, and you wrote to me, alternatively, come back to Earth and Mac Miller to avoid expletives. So yeah. I think this is a version that you wanted to talk about without talking about using expletives. Um, mm. This song has a very, sh- like, very, I think it, 
it spoke to me in a way it just it it's so interesting i think when i when i watched the music video i really had no words the first time i watched it because it was just that powerful in my mind i thought it was so interesting and the thing i wanted to ask you about which is so interesting is because for most of the song you see him in this box you know like he's placed in this box you don't really see anything else maybe that's the portion that i watched but I remember seeing him in the box and I felt like, wow, this, this song is just so heavy, but I, I still feel like in a way he's protecting himself or is he trying to hide from people or does he sort of feel closed off? I want to ask you about that. Yeah. So with Mac Miller, um, his, you know, Mac Miller kind of like went through, uh, like, you know, he went through his battle with addiction and because of that, his his evolution i think through his last few years of music specifically when he was writing swimming uh for the years that he was um a lot of the conversation and a lot of what he was talking about throughout that album was just about kind of overcoming his demons overcoming his struggles with that and uh in terms of self-care especially like the like the song title like he's kind of talking about uh specifically there's the lyric like you know self-care treating me right like that sort of thing where he's finally trying to get himself together and try and uh you know do right by himself in the music video like he's kind of uh saying that he's not you know sort of ironically i guess like that he's not ready to die that he's like ready to kind of live his life and the transition like part one is self-care in that song part two i think is called oblivion and that's kind of like when he busts out of uh, like the box and like through the the mound of dirt, I think it is or whatever. Um, and no, I mean like the song, it's just, it very much just talks about like him sort of choosing a new path for himself and sort of that struggle in doing so. And the album as a whole, he kind of discusses that a lot. So Come Back to Earth was kind of like that, that opens the album. Um, and that song, uh, it's like the the first lyric of that song like my regrets look just like texts i've never sent like very much spoke to me because it's like it sounds so simple but it's i feel like in our generation where everything is through a digital form of communication it's like you know something as simple as like oh i regret not sending this message to this person um like you know it sounds like a big regret i think to people our age where it's like man i didn't i didn't send that email i didn't write that text you know i didn't facetime when i should have so sure and i want want to mention to you that uh the lyrics like we mentioned this with actually um with tyler actually hunter if you remember yeah um when you sort of see a question in the song i think we we talked about this earlier that we sort of break the fourth wall and he he does he does that sort of like right away. I want I want to sort of talk about that with you because um, I've been reading a lot of slam poetry with these lyrics. So feel free to give me some uh, snaps, claps, however you feel after I read this, because I'm not the best reader. But I want to read this a lot because I I think it's worth noting. He starts out by saying, "I switched the time zone, but what do I know? Spending nights hitchhiking. Where will I go?" I could fly home with my eyes closed, but it gets kind of hard to see. That's no surprise, though, and you could find me. I ain't hiding. I don't move my feet when I be gliding. I slide in, and then I roll out. 
So I, I want to gauge you on this. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I mean, specifically that part where he says like, you know, what do I know? Like if we're kind of uh, pointing out like the, the question that he's at, like one of the questions that he asks in the song, like the way that I've always kind of looked at Mac Miller's music, especially in swimming is that I do feel a sense of that he breaks the fourth wall, even when it doesn't seem very apparent that he's doing so because he does have, he did have, um, a certain reach, I think, with his fans and the way that he wrote his music and what he was talking about. I think there's moments uh, in his career, in his personal life, where he felt very isolated, where he felt sort of lost and that he was going through this huge thing with his addiction. He was trying to figure himself out as a person. And, you know, I think as much as people lift celebrities up as they lift sort of, you know, musicians and artists up as these kind of larger than life characters, a lot of what he talks about, I think, especially in this song, whether it's intentional or not, the way that I kind of always perceived it is it's very human. Like it's very simple mm. that like, you know, at the end of the day, there's a lot that he doesn't know. There's a lot that he's just kind of like, he's kind of like looking at himself, looking at what's around him and being like, I, I don't know. I'm trying to figure myself out. Like I, I don't have all the answers just cause I'm, I'm an artist or because I'm making money or because I'm doing this or whatever it is. Like, it's just at the end of the day, like I'm just trying to do me and figure out me and like treat myself with respect. And it's kind of hard to do that when you've got a microscope on you. I think this, this song is such a message to all of what you just said. I think it's, it's, it's such a beautiful introspective song in that way i think it's mm. it's so cool that you that you brought this one up because i think it's 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 a big deal i think it's something that's worth noting mm. and to totally flip it to a different subject i think this is such a very hard way for me to segue into the next song but i'm glad that hunter is able to talk about this next one so your seventh choice was i'll be seeing you by mm. billy holiday yes and it's a very divergent choice in comparison to your other picks. I was surprised to see it on here. Um, so she has a very, very large catalog, catalog of songs. Um, why this song? Um, I mean, from my knowledge, I know that I'll be seeing you, like, because this is the Billie Holiday version, and I, hmm. she did not write this song. I know that it's, like, this is a cover, and I was... I know Frank Sinatra, I think, yeah. has a very popular version of this song, but I don't even know if he's the original. Didn't it come from yeah. a musical? It was or a uh, it, well, it was an old World War II torch song. Yes. Um, when, I mean, that's when it really gained popularity because it's obviously talking about someone who has gone away, but they'll see them when they get back. So yes. it became like sort of an anthem for the soldiers yes. who had gone over. Mm. Um, but yeah, it, it's much older than it's older than her version. Yeah, but so uh, choosing the Billie Holiday version, one, I, I just, I, like on a surface level, I just really enjoy this version. I love Billie Holiday's like mm -hmm. sound. I just, I love her music. Um, but, you know, I picked this song particularly um, because like, I think this was uh, one of like the first like old school, like, you know, 50s, 40s sort of era songs that I had heard. Yeah. 
because uh, I think this was in the movie The Notebook. I could be wrong about that, but I think this version was in the movie The Notebook. And I think I was like in middle school when I had seen it, like seen mm-hmm. the movie. And it stuck out to me. And I remember seeking it out like on my, like on YouTube to illegally download it and like play it on my iPod touch. (laughs) (laughs) And up until that point, like I, my, and we'll talk about these songs like a little bit later, but like, you know, my parents had kind of exposed me to pre 2000s music. Like my whole childhood was not just high school musical and kids bop as much as I enjoyed those, that, that music, like I had heard, you know, stuff from like the nineties and the eighties and the seventies, but I had never really heard music from the 50s or 40s. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I saw it in that movie. I remember listening to it a lot and then kind of having a connection with my grandparents about the music that they listened to and getting some real exposure to like Frank Sinatra and, uh, and like the pretenders and like a lot of those you know, 50s, you know, one hit wonders that they used to listen to. And I just like found a connection with them in that way. Like even to this day, if I drive my dad's grandparents, my dad's grandparents, my dad's parents around. (laughs) Really? Your dad's grandparents? (laughs) Yep. They're in their hundreds. (laughs) Um, My dad's parents around, like (laughs) I am... you know, when I'm in the car with them, I put on, cause like Apple music, Spotify, like I put on, I have a playlist that I've made of like fifties and sixties music and they're very, uh, they're not technologically savvy at all. They're very dinosaur in that sense. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's music that even from their era, they have not listened to in probably decades. And yeah. there was very particular moment uh, in the car when we were waiting like for my grandfather to go do something that my grandma had turned to me and said like you know I remember growing up listening to Fats Domino and on repeat and I can't remember the last time I had heard him and I remember putting just like his music on and realizing like wow like this is this is stuff that was timeless to my grandparents like my grandparents grew up on this music they went through a war if not several wars with some of this music and like it's kind of a disservice not to appreciate it i mean i just like it anyway i think i love music from the 50s like i think there's something to be said about just how how delicate that music can be but also kind of exciting and ragtag and all that but yeah mm-hmm. i mean it's a song that I think it's like the, my first experience with that era of music and then kind of finding appreciation for that through my grandparents and realizing like, wow, there's more out there than just iCarly's. (laughs) (laughs) As iconic as that is. Yeah. You know, (laughs) so. (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I think you, you sort of hit the nail on the head, right? It's all about, you know, we talk a lot about connection and connecting, especially to a previous generation whose music for many years had sort of fallen into obscurity. Um, you know what I mean? So, cause like when the, I'll call it like the, when the Renaissance of the eighties, so to speak, came around, you know, pop, pop music sort of dominated the scene. It was, mm-hmm. it was what it was all about. And then trans, uh, you know, transport yourself 10 years later into the nineties. Now people, it was all about making the next big thing. You know, pop artists were huge. And to be honest, in the 80s and 90s was when all the, uh, they're referred to as like the the crooners or the standard singers were Mm. dying. You know, Ella Fitzgerald died in 96, Sinatra in 98. um, And 
because they were dying off now all of a sudden people weren't not that they weren't listening to them but like their presence was no longer around to reinforce their legacy mm -hmm. you know what i mean and the the generation that listened to them was now becoming quote unquote old yeah so it was yeah. no longer cool like when you know the, the prime of life generation the people who control everything are like 30 to 50 year olds they're sort of the people who dictate the way society goes it's just the nature of things and then when they get older their stuff falls out of style um as much as we see things about like the, the teenager generation the crux of society is based on whoever is in middle age um or early to late middle age um so now you know those people have, have long since gone or they're very old um i mean not ancient but you know they're much older and their music is it's often overlooked because even say the oldest music you tend to be exposed to is your grandparents generation right and a lot of people who are growing up now their grandparents generation are those who were raised in the 60s and 70s so that's the oldest music they get exposed to you know they might it might be like earth wind and fire or um, you know, I can't be like 70s, you know, band like Led Zeppelin or something. Um, <laughs> right. So that's old, quote unquote, to them. And then they hear like, say, Billie Holiday, or they hear like going even farther back. Um, uh, I can't even think of her name. Uh, Helen, God, Doris, Doris Day played her in a movie. She was a 20s Dixie, not Dixie singer, uh, like vaudeville singer. And you're like, my God, what is this, 100 years ago? Well, in fact, it was. <laughs> so now, especially we're 2020, you know. Mm. Roaring 20s was 100 years ago. So it's very interesting. Um, and funny about Billie Holiday, you know, her life was very tumultuous. Yes. You know, she was born in 1915, one of the most revered singers in the jazz world, but she struggled with addiction and money troubles, and she died at the age of 44. Um, and I believe she died chained to a bedpost in a hospital. Um, unfortunate, very unfortunate. But people find great inspiration in her struggles. And that she conveyed that through her music. Do you feel that at all? Or is it the song particularly you connect with? Um, I mean, like, in that sense, like, you know, in talking about, like, you know, many of those artists who had died, like, say, in the 80s or 90s or early 2000s, like, because Billie Holiday died so young, thinking about, because, like, I what she was in her 40s or something like that. Yeah, 44. Um, yeah, so like, you know, you think about like the type of legacy in a sense that she led where in some ways at, when she was living, as incredible as her voice was, as incredible as her music was, she was kind of painted very negatively in the press because of her issues with, with drug addiction. Yeah. Um, and, you know, she died young and thinking about that sort of legacy that she left is while it's tragic it's also kind of what i think cemented her as being so yes i agree as being so iconic even though at the time people may not have felt that way about her i would say in the conversations that even in 2020 for people who do know billy holiday's music they view her as iconic and very t like you know that she kind of lives as a legacy like lives a legacy through that era and I think a lot of those artists do as much as people our age may not listen to that style of music, you know, in, in the most obscure of ways, those artists do leave a legacy sometimes because they inspired 
what came next. And sometimes you have even hip hop uh, and rap where they sometimes sample old school music and turn it into, uh, you know, something modern and new. And so like, you know, even if people aren't directly listening to that music, they're finding inspiration through it or what they're listening to was inspired by it, whether they realize it or not. I mean, my, uh, kind of related to this, but not, but like, you know, my great grandmother, my dad's grandma, she was like a big fan, I think of Bing Crosby. And she, oh, yeah. found, and she found out that he was like part owner of the Pittsburgh Pirates when she was still living. And she became, even though they lived in New York, she became like a huge Pittsburgh Pirates fan, then became a huge Pittsburgh Steelers fan. And then passed that on to my father, who my brother is now a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. Like it's continued throughout generations. And even in that sense, it's like, whether yeah. you realize it or not, Bing Crosby, like, built a Pittsburgh Steelers legacy yeah. in my family. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> so... What a weird connection. Yeah, no, I mean, so it's like, you know, though, because the way we view musicians and the way we view artists now is so different than yes. how they were viewed back in the 50s and 40s, and even the 60s, but especially, I think, in the 50s and 40s. And so, like those artists were mm -hmm. legitimately icons to their era and there weren't as many of them as there are today because no, music right. is so success like accessible so for pe like you know if you made it big if you were a billy holiday if you were a nina simone if you even were a john lennon like that was huge you know those were yeah. those were like that was a big deal so you know now not saying that artists nowadays are not a big deal because there's certainly multi-million dollar like you know chart topping artists out there but like what those art what those singers and those musicians meant to our grandparents generation i think was slightly different because there was only so much accessible in that era and so much people were listening to you know so i'll be seeing you's message you know how it was this sort of world war ii uh anthem because you know all these men went away their wives are at home whatever it is and they it was kind of a comfort where it's like maybe you'll come you like hopefully you come home one day you know mm. yeah so yeah. Yeah, that's a conversation that like it could it could literally last an entire podcast, but we have to <laughs> move on to the next one because I could say quite a bit more about that. But yes. jumping ahead about twenty years from uh, that generation. Yes. Uh, Sean, you, the next artist. The next artist is uh, Led Zeppelin, and the song that that Everett chose is In the Evening. It's such an interesting song, Everett, because right at the top, it's so experimental and there's no real groove to really much there. And I, it's so interesting. It's, it's so like, I think we, we, we talked about this with our previous guest, how sometimes when we sort of listen to atmospheric music, it can sort of take us over and put us in a different place of mind. What do you sort of take away from the beginning of the song? Um, yeah, I mean, there, it certainly establishes an atmosphere to it. I feel it's somewhat, it's somewhat controversial that I've picked uh, this song in the sense that it, like, this is certainly, I don't think, one of Led Zeppelin's most iconic albums at all. Like, right. I, you know, like, I think physical graffiti or like even just even Led Zeppelin's one through four stick out to those who are Led Zeppelin fans way more than, uh, you know, this album that in the evening is on. 
because uh, I think this was like late 70s when this came out. So like while they were still obviously a huge rock band at this point, it I don't think this was nearly as popular. I could be wrong about this, but like based off of just conversations I've had with like my father and stuff, like I don't think this album sticks out to Led Zeppelin fans as much. Sure. But um, this, you know, the, the start of this is like the start of this song is so interesting because of the way it establishes an atmosphere without too much going on. Um, I actually wound up doing a little bit of research that uh, Jimmy Page, the guitarist, used, um, like, I think it's called a gizmotron or something like that, which is like this piece that you attach onto the guitar. Um, and that's what creates that sort of synthesizer-like sound because it vibrates the strings of the guitar in a certain way. Um, and that's how he kind of created that sort of uh, like waning in and out atmospheric you know, sound. And I thought that was really cool. Cause it's like, you're, it's, it doesn't take much. Like you're just, right. he's just playing a guitar. He's got a little, little attachment on there and he's just, he's making it go. Like he's, he's got this really cool sound to it. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, this song to me is just different. Like I, I think it's, it like the message of it isn't super deep or, you know, he's just, he, he's not really saying anything that's like incredibly innovative or different, but I happen to just really like the song. Sure. And as I've been doing with the other songs, I am going to read some more slam poetry right now due to their lyrics. Uh, feel free to snap clap along as I read them. Uh, we got in the evening when the day is done, I'm looking for a woman, but the girl don't come. So don't let her. Play you for a fool. She don't show no pity, baby. She don't make no rules. So interesting. I, 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 it's, it's so different than literally anything I've ever heard because it's so honest. I think that's what I like about it. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, um, in connection to this song, I actually went up picking this song in particular because uh, it kind of happened upon me uh through uh there was a tv show like i think two years ago sharp objects which was like based off of a book um and the character uh listens to led zeppelin uh i think there's like maybe five or six songs like throughout the soundtrack which is like kind of a good chunk of like a tv show soundtrack um and she listens to a lot of led zeppelin and this song in particular um I, it kind of like wound up speaking to the character in such a way where it like the, again, like I said, I don't think the lyrics are like all that innovative or different, but just the way that he speaks about kind of this like lost love in a sense um, is interesting because the way that I, I remember it being presented in the, in the show was not about a, a uh, romantic love interest but it was familial related and the way that they kind of integrated that was just different so I wound up liking the song a little bit more because then it, they added this layer to it that wasn't there they didn't like what you were saying they were coming for you yeah I was gonna <laughs> say it, like, you know <laughs> no it's 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 uh it's background like we're starting to you guys are composing now we've uh we're getting experimental Right. I, it's it's so interesting. I, I I had so many questions about this song. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it was just I mean, like, when you when you brought it up, I think it was a great way for me to get more acclimated to Led Zeppelin because I know how big they are. Mm -hmm. 
but 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 like you mentioned the song isn't what really defines them so my my question being what 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 else do you enjoy about the song um i think i just like the fact that it like the intro builds and then it takes it in a completely different direction like you've got this sort of i get like a crescendo in a sense and then like the beat drops and it's just like it's just kind of like fun it's not as it's i guess like I, I don't take it as seriously as some other led zeppelin songs or like even other people who are fans of led zeppelin because like it doesn't necessarily need to emulate what they're I guess like what they're most known for because as much as it sounds like Led Zeppelin they definitely I think tried to be a little bit more experimental as they went on in their career and so like you know for people like uh, you know you've got like dazed and confused good times bad times like that sort of style and like you definitely get that still Led Zeppelin but there's something about it that I think is just different enough that I I find it to be kind of exciting and right. that's why I want I actually went up picking this song instead of dazed and confused now let me ask you this as a quick question do you see some sort of routine involved or do you see some sort of theatrical design that you're that's sort of throwing through your head right now when you listen to the song yeah i mean like i feel like whether i want to admit it or not almost anytime i listen to music i there's some element of lighting that comes to mind because i appreciate visuals with music i think there's a sense of enhancing music when you have a visual whether it's dance or acting or whatever it is um and so like for lighting specifically like when i listen to songs like this there's just because you start with that that sort of atmospheric crescendo into uh like the bulk of the song you there's certainly a transition that you can create through lighting and through color and i just i find some of that kind of interesting to if I were to like really sit down and think about what I would do and how I would sort of build that, but I hadn't really think of thought about it like too hard. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no problem. I was just, I was just curious. Yeah. Um, and jumping another 20 or so years, I'll bump it back up to Hunter. All right. So your ninth choice was you ought to know by Alanis Morissette. Yes. Um, and, you know, she, she was sort of the epitome of like a 90s pop star, you know, every stereotype you might think of look-wise and sound-wise, I feel like she embodies. Um, this song is from her album, Jagged Little Pill. Uh, why you why'd you pick this one? Um, so, I mean, Alanis Morissette, my, you know, with Led Zeppelin, I think of my dad a lot because, like, my dad is the one who really got me into a lot of, like, the 70s sort of rock, mm -hmm. uh, rock band music, uh, you know, like Rolling Stones, uh, you know, both my parents kind of got me into Fleetwood Mac, but, you know, that sort of style. My mom, uh, growing up, like, even when I was younger, like, I, I want to say maybe I was probably in elementary school and we would listen to Alanis Morissette's song, Ironic, in the car. Mm -hmm. um, and my mom's kind of the one who introduced me to a lot of female energy in the music industry. Um, and especially uh, artists like Alanis Morissette, who like in the 90s, like I think her music is kind of described as at that time with, with Jagged Little Pill as like post-grunge essentially, where like you come off like the late 80s yeah. era into this sort of alternative rock 
uh, like pop rock sort of vibe. Um, and she, like she was 19, I think when she wrote this and what she wound up writing, like, you know, this album, Jagged Little Pill was so impactful towards women like listening to her music and listening to music in the 90s I genuinely do think that she was kind of like one of the the major players of the 90s even into the early 2000s for like feminism in in music because like she she was very brash she was very honest like she swore she talked about female sexuality in her music she was angry like in some of her songs and you ought to know especially like became like a breakup anthem for women and it not even necessarily just about breaking up with a a significant other but there was something empowering about sort of saying you know like it's not all about the men. It's not all about like his side and his perspective. I can be angry. I can be, you know, unladylike and I can say something. And a lot of women, I think it spoke to a lot of women. When I, you know, Jagged Little Pill became a a Broadway musical very Mm -hmm. recently. Um, And when they were still doing previews, I got a chance to go see it a couple years ago. And the singer, when she, cause it's, they, it's like a jukebox musical. It's a lot of, it's almost every single song from the album yeah. and the actress who sings this song, you ought to know in the show, almost every single night got a standing ovation. Like that's how much this song yeah. sticks out to people who listen to her music. And yeah, like it's just like, it's just such a, I don't even know like how to describe it. It's just a song to me that she had a lot to say and she said it you know like she Mm -hmm. she didn't hold back and that sort of energy with a lot of female singers i think were inspired by her like like following alanis morissette like i think of avril lavigne a lot when i think of avril lavigne's early stages of her music there was a lot that she was talking about at a young age that was, it was honest and it was sometimes angry and she didn't feel like she had to present herself as the stereotypical uh, pop star. Like she could do the punk rock thing. She could do the sort of grunge-esque style and still cultivate a following and an audience out of that because people liked what what she was saying, what she was doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that, you know, it's, evident in her popularity that she certainly spoke to many people. Why do you think, you know, in the, in the last couple of years leading up to her uh, album becoming the jukebox musical, she saw a bit of a resurgence in popularity. You know, she had sort of dropped out, um, like you said, early 2000s and was sort of under the radar. People weren't quite familiar with her if they hadn't already known who she was. Um, Why do you think she's seen a resurgence in the last couple of years, starting with um, the previews of the musical? Um, I think because uh, sort of like what I've, I've talked about a little bit before is that like what she's talking about is not hyper-specific to a certain era. Like I think right. it's just, you know, she's, she's, she was writing music for women and not mm-hmm. like you know, what people stereotypically associate with women who listen to music, where it's like, oh, it needs to be sort of, you know, empty and, you know, up uplifting and upbeat and sort of poppy. Like, 
you know, even as much as people criticize Madonna and, you know, like that 80s sort of, you know, pop style of music, like Madonna was saying some, some pretty, in the early stages of her career, she was saying some pretty important things to people who were listening to her music and sort of pushing the envelope, you know, mm -hmm. even Lady Gaga uh, as like a more modern version of that. Like there's so much that I think there's female there are female artists who push the envelope outside of this sort of cookie cutter box that a lot of uh, women sometimes fall into in the industry where in Alanis Morissette's case, I think there's a lot of anger in her music, but it's justifiable anger where it's like, I'm not angry for no reason. Like I, I have a reason to be frustrated and I shouldn't have to sugarcoat that to get on the radio. Like people are going to, like it speaks to people people are going to listen to that and say like i get it like and especially women not saying that like alanis morissette isn't for men like men can obviously listen to her music and find appreciation but it there's something specific about what she was saying that i think many women saw themselves in, and it was new and different and even now it's different you know like you've the the popular female artists of the late 2010s uh, aren't necessarily putting out that sound and that style. So yeah. why do you think that? Why do you think they aren't? Um, I would say, I think, I think at the time that they could have, it wasn't, you know, men could kind of do what Alanis Morissette was doing and it was popular, like not saying that Nirvana and Alanis Morissette are uh, comparable, but like, you know, when, Nirvana and bands and bands like that like I guess extending past that the Counting Crows um, like you know when they're doing it it's like you know a man can be angry he can say these things speaking to the 90s 2000s era of like mm -hmm. that sort of style of music but with women I think it was harder to get yourself into popularity doing that style of music um, you know like uh, another <clears throat> example that I can think of is like uh, I would say like probably like Evanescence, as big as Evanescence was, like I think there was something about their music that perhaps didn't catapult them into sort of a mainstream legacy where people still talk about their music to the extent that they did when uh, I think what was their album, My Immortal or whatever it was came out or um, like I think like Natalie Merchant and like 10,000 Maniacs or uh, there was an 80s band till Tuesday, the lead singer, Amy Mann, wound up like going on and doing and like having this really uh, great career. But I don't think she ever reached a point of mainstream because I just don't think people found interest in that. And so like nowadays, if women wanted to do that, it's just not a popular sound anymore. So when it was a popular sound, I think it was hard to, to get there as a woman. And now I think it's just not it's not the mainstream, like that sort of post grunge alternative rock isn't, isn't the number one genre. So if a woman were to start doing that and kind of embody Alanis Morissette's attitude and lyricism, they probably just wouldn't find success just because it's not as big right now. Yeah. Well, and speaking of women struggling and yet sometimes succeeding, um, the next song ha speaks greatly to that. So Sean, take it away. Well, this one actually I'm really excited to talk about because this is such a departure from from what we know is new. And the song in question is This Is Me Trying by Taylor Swift. Mm -hmm. Everett, I have to say, when I before I listened to this song, 
I have a preconceived notion of what Taylor Swift songs like. I, I like Taylor Swift. There's nothing wrong with Taylor Swift. And when I listened to this song, I was so dumbstruck. I was like, holy crap. I've never heard her get to this level before. This was so crazy. And I'm not sure how you feel because I, I really want to get into to what you think about it. Because I, I, I was just like, wow, this is so different. Yeah, I mean, I in trying to you know bring down my list to only 10 songs uh, i kind of knew very early on that there was that i was going to include a taylor swift song on this list um because like taylor swift i would say over the last decade of my really getting into music and like kind of choosing music on my own like i've always kind of listened to her music and sometimes i've enjoyed it more than other times but i've always kind of appreciated her music and enjoyed her music and this like you know this album folklore her having put it out like a month ago not even um certainly was a departure from a lot of what people had known her as like you know she she did the country pop thing then she was kind of pushing herself towards like, uh, you know, 1989 kind of was very synthesizer-esque sort of pop music, you know, moving on to her reputation era, as people call it, where like she was kind of moving somewhat into elements of R&B and a little bit of hip hop mixed in with that sort of, again, synthesizer pop. And then, you know, she had her lover era, which again was kind of moving towards like pop music. And now it's like, no, we're just going to go full fledged into alternative. And, mm -hmm. you know, she, she choosing to do this is, is certainly incredible to me because like her lyricism in this album, I, I would say every single song on this album, I think is just lyrically very incredible. Like I, in this song in particular, it's just very honest and very real. And as much as people say like, well, all, all of her music is real because like, you know, she's honest in her music. Like this is just, this album says a lot. And I can't necessarily say what, how do I word this? Like what in particular she she's gonna do next, but I think it's just mm. really incredible that she did that. She took that departure and chose to do this. So right. like this is kind of like the what I'm listening to right now and super into because I've you know, I loved her when I was 13, I had like a Taylor Swift inspired birthday party. So <laughs> I was I was a huge uh Taylor Swift fan during her fearless and speak now fate like, you know, eras and her phase and um, when she moved on to her red in 1989, I liked her music and I still listened to it, but I kind of lost some interest when she transferred into pop. And then I got back into her through her reputation era because I, I really liked that sort of deep bass synthesizer sort of like those sort of elements that she was incorporating. And this, I just think this album is incredible. So, right. yeah. And you did mention lyrics, so here comes my slam poetry once again <laughs> on a little bit of the beginning of her song. Mm. She goes, I've been having a hard time adjusting. I've had the shiniest wheels, now they're rusting. I didn't know you'd care if I came back. I have a lot of regrets about that. Pulled the car off the road to look out. Could have followed my fears all the way down. 
and maybe I don't know quite why. No, blop, sorry. And maybe I don't quite know what to say, but here I am in your doorway. So different. It is, it is like universally different. It is so incredible. And the thing that I, I'm just so dumbfounded by is just how, how personal it is. Like you really like, you finally understand how she's feeling. Like maybe this is what she wanted to do for a long time, but maybe she was forced into sort of playing the music that people wanted to play here. And then maybe at this point in time, she really wants to sort of really have her voice heard. Yeah. What does that say about her as an artist? Yeah, I mean, the way that I've kind of viewed her career, and actually, like, not to draw a direct comparison, but by extension, even Lady Gaga's career, um, there's a certain expectation to those artists where, like, you know, in Taylor Swift's career specifically, like, you know, she did the country pop thing. And she, you know, she was very successful in that when she was kind of emerging and people like really loved her music. And when she uh, put out Red, her album Red, she was kind of towing the line between like, she did like that song, We Are Never Getting Back Together, which was like very pop and, you know, not at all. Like there was really no elements of country in it. That album Mm. still had some country songs on it, but then it also had very pop songs on it. And she didn't really find as much success as she was looking for in that album, because I think it was kind of that you need to pick one. You need to pick either your going pop or your sticking country. If you want to evolve your sound, you have to do a full commitment to it. And, you know, she chose to do that, the, the pop commitment. She did 1989, which was very successful, very, I think, cohesively and sonically. It was a very good album. Right. Um, and, you know, the Reputation era the lover era, like there's an expectation for her sound and her style. And with and me bringing up Lady Gaga, Lady Gaga, it's kind of the same way when she put out Joanne, her album, Joanne, it was a departure from a lot of what she had previously done in her career thus far. And I don't think, and I say this not to be like offensive, I don't think Joanne was nearly as successful because of the fact that people were expecting pop. They were expecting, you know, this sort of theatricality that Lady Gaga was known for. And she chose to kind of strip that all away and do something different. And I don't think people responded to that well. And with, with this, like, you know, as much as people are finding intrigue and saying like, oh, wow, I didn't realize Taylor Swift was capable of this, or like, I'm not a Taylor Swift fan, but I'll listen to this. I don't think she's going to necessarily find as much and I don't think she's looking for this, but as much commercial success as some of her pop music might, because like, I don't necessarily foresee this being on the radio. Like me from Lover, which was like, you know, maybe not lyrically the most challenging song was a very easy radio sort of hit, you know, like we are never getting back together, very radio, very pop, whatever. This is obviously a departure from that and you know you're not going to really necessarily hear this music on the radio you may um she may draw in fans who may not have been fans of her music before this but it's it's definitely way more for her than it is for for that commercial success and she has the room to do that because she is taylor swift like she's she's a multi-million dollar artist (laughs) who has sold out stadiums so like you know if she wants to to do a folk album or an alternative album or whatever it is like she'll sell albums she'll still find success because she can always go back and do something else 
but you know it's the name game is a powerful thing yeah as i say it's certainly it certainly helps like as i say like with lady gaga like lady gaga is gonna bounce back because even though maybe people didn't like joanne as much like one she's lady gaga and two she can because she's lady gaga she can always you know bring herself back to whatever she wants to or change herself again you know like if adele put out an r like a i mean not an r&b a hip-hop album like that was like hardcore like crunk hip-hop it would certainly be a departure maybe not everybody would enjoy it (laughs) But her fan, like, you know, hardcore fans will still buy it. They'll still find appreciation for it. And she'll probably be able to bounce back and put out another album that recalls her previous music and find success because the name game right. certainly helps that. So, yeah. So, I mean, she's able to do this for herself because she has the the means to do so, which I applaud right. that she's she's choosing to to kind of do that. Sure. So every, now I want a bizarre image in my head of like Adele <laughs> hip hop dancing. That's really weird. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, but it's you sure. know you th- you think about it and like it's funny because even if you were to juxtapose uh, Taylor Swift's like Fearless or Speak Now with 1989 with uh, with Folklore, like you know, there's certainly a and her fans like some of her fans have already pointed out lyrically the. Uh, like what she like kind of taught like like certain themes and topics and motifs and previous albums and previous lyrics which have now popped up in this album which like i think it takes a lot of time and i give those people a lot of credit but like you know sonically they're very different so it's like you know your her topics what she chooses to talk about has kind of been consistent it's just that she's transforming her sound as she goes which is what's kind of trips people up i think right so Everett, I want to thank you for your playlist. It was so personal. It was beautiful. And I was so glad to have you on to just talk about these big issues in music. And it was so glad to hear your voice on these subjects. So, so thank you for that. And it was, it was quite beautiful. Now getting a little more serious, uh, Hunter has yeah, let's a... let's go with that. <laughs> of course, I, I think so as well. Hunter has a general music quiz for you. And when we come back from the break, he will test you five songs to see if you know all your general music. So (laughs) don't go anywhere. You'll be back with more Everett, so don't go away. Okay. And we're back. So, Everett, are you ready for your five-question general music quiz? Ready as I'll ever be. (laughs) Excellent. We've come to the conclusion that that's the musician's staple answer, even when they're not. So, we're going (laughs) to run with it. So, question number one. What is Jay-Z's real name? I know his last name's Carter. (laughs) That is true. (laughs) You're at a 50%. Yeah. I don't know, to be honest with you. That sounds like terrible. One of the names is actually on the screen right now as you're looking at uh, us. Sean Carter? Yeah, very good. See, like, I don't, I'm going to be honest, like, Jay-Z is like one of the few artists that, like, in terms of, because I went through a huge hip-hop and rap phase, like, 
he was like one of the few that I never got myself into. Yeah. So, yeah. Sorry about that, Jay Z. I like Beyonce though. <laughs> <laughs> Huge Beyonce fan. <laughs> All right, number two. Robert Plant, John Paul Jones, Jimmy Page, and John Bonham were part of what rock group? Hold on, Hunter, you cut out. I did not hear a single part of that. No? <laughs> Let's try that again. Robert Plant, John Paul Jones, Jimmy Page, and John Bonham were part of what rock band? Led Zeppelin. <laughs> there you go. I didn't think that one was going to be too hard for you. All right. Um, what singer recorded... Age ain't nothing but a number, and num and one in a million before her tragic death in two thousand one. I'll be honest; I've never heard of her before. Like this song sounds familiar. Like age ain't nothing but a number. That sounds yeah. familiar. And one in a million. Ooh, I don't know. I think if it helps, the artist w that was maybe involved with age ain't nothing but a number is R. Kelly, I think. Who's featured in the song? We're not... <laughs> I'm so sorry to laugh at that. That's just kind of ironic. Um... <laughs> no, no, it's true. It's true. Yeah. Um, ooh. One word. Is it one, or one name. What? Aaliyah? Yeah. Yeah. That's it. There you go. go. I had to think about that for a moment. I was like, hold on. <laughs> All right. I like how um, R. Kelly is what helped me figure that out. <laughs> in that case, thanks to Sean for that clue. Thank you, Sean. <laughs> you know, I have to say, I don't really know a lot of R. Kelly, but they did a spoof of him on SNL where they sort of recreated the um, the interview and he was just sort of screaming at, uh, I think, uh, one of the, 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 um, the newscasters. And he's like, I did this song, and I, I didn't know she's nothing but a number. <laughs> uh, and I'm like, creepy. Okay, let's, let's continue. So go ahead, Hunter. That's okay. All right. Thank you for that. Number four. What hip-hop artist made his film debut in Stomp the Yard and then later filmed with Regina King? Stomp the Yard. Yeah, the movie was Stomp the Yard. Yeah, I'm trying to think of like movies that Regina King's been in. I'm just going to give you a quick hint. He's also a rapper. Or a uh, R&B singer, sorry. R&B singer. I don't know. I want to say P. Diddy. I don't know why. You're not far off. Yeah. Like, I don't, like that. I don't know why, but like P. Diddy's like the one, because he, like, I know he got into acting. But... Yeah. He was actually pretty good at it, too. Yeah. Yeah. Because he was in A Raisin in the Sun, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say that's what I saw him in uh, first. He was good in that. Yeah. I'm, I don't know. I'm trying to think of like R&B singers. Here's, a, here's another clue ever if you want it or not. Um, he had an incident on an elevator. All I can think of is Jay-Z. <laughs> <laughs> Do you not know about like the whole thing with like Beyonce's sister Solange where like she like beat up Jay-Z in an elevator with her shoe or something? I heard something about that. All right, yeah. So like you're gonna... it, was, it was actually the opposite way around. 
Oh, he beat up somebody the... in an elevator? Yeah. Ooh. Oh, then I don't know. Now you're... Okay. Okay. I'm probably going to have to kick myself in the foot no. after you... Color in his name? Color in his name. Last name is a color? Last name is a color. Who? CeeLo Green? No, actually, but that's pretty clever. <laughs> I didn't think of that. <laughs> no, like... no. Chris Brown. Oh. I didn't know he was an act. I didn't. I didn't know he acted. Yeah, not. All, I don't think he acts a lot. I think it's just those those two films that he made were probably his only two big things. See, like I would have never have thought because of because of the acting. Like I was trying to think of an R and B singer that I knew acted. Right. And I was like, well, CeeLo Green's been on The Voice. I guess that counts. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. That counts. We'll give him a tally for that. Yeah. It was a valiant effort. Um, I appreciate that. All right, last one. Completely, no more, uh, no more pop stuff for this one. So, the golden age of Broadway began with Oklahoma in 1943 and ended in 1964. What is considered the last great show of the golden age of Broadway? 1964. So this predates West Side Story. Well, right. West Side Story was in 57. So correction to my earlier revision of my earlier note, West Side Story was from 57, not 59. All right, so then, who, 64. It is a show you're familiar with. I was gonna say, I'm trying to think of, what have I done? I don't even, now I'm like trying to like catalog all the musicals I've done. <laughs> Is it Gershwin? Like, is it something? No. No, that's, that's beyond. That's far back. I'll yeah. give you another clue. Jerome Kern. If that know. helps at all. Ooh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying to think of, like, what is it, like, Hello, Dolly? Like, I don't know. I'm close. To, yeah, I'm like, You're close. To, I'm trying That's to think of right. musicals I've done. <laughs> You're close. Dolly was, I've been the same year, actually. Like from that timeline. You actually, now that I think about it, you may not have actually done the show. I was like an in-betweener. Yeah. Now that I think about it, because, well, if I say this, it'll give it away. How to succeed? No. Before that. Before How to Succeed. What was before How to Succeed? It was the Dark Ages, Everett. It was the Dark Ages. I know. I'm like, I feel like I blacked out my high school experience, apparently. How um, to deal with a, a specific culture. A specific culture? Ragtime? Nope. Before that. Before Ragtime. What the hell music are we talking about? <laughs> You're really scraping the think the Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe. What did we do that was Eastern Europe? <laughs> we did. Oh, I, yeah, Fiddler. I didn't do Fiddler. I no, didn't. you didn't. That's why I was like, I don't think you actually worked on it because I was a freshman. And I was in the pit for it, so that means you were in eighth grade. This sounds so terrible, and I know, I know it sounds terrible, but like Fiddler is like the one show 
well, that's a lie, but like Fiddler is one of the shows that like I know I should know, but besides like song, like Sean, like singing it, like I still don't know a majority of that music. I know like Matchmaker and if I was a rich man and that was it, but I should yeah, know there it. You go. I, was gonna I go should try. know it. <laughs> tradition, tradition. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I was like, when I said the, the clue, I was like, wait a minute, no. He's a year under me. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> I know the whiz very well, though. <laughs> oh, let's not talk about it. <laughs> All right, well, you passed with semi-flying colors. They're like walking colors. I tried. Yeah, um, you tried, you know and what? that's what counts. Yeah, I was going to say, you know what? Like, those were, uh, those were easy, but also hard. I like to, you know... Yeah. I'll give myself some credit. I'll pat myself on the back for that. Oh yeah, you got there. Yeah. You definitely relied on inner knowledge there. It was it was there. You were close. It was very I was close. close. Yes. Well, we'd like to thank you for being on Everett. You've been a wonderful guest. Hope you got a, as much enjoyment out of it as we did. Of course I did. I love talking about music. It's always a fun time. Anything to add, Sean? Well, Everett, the last thing we like to ask guests, is there anything you want to plug? Anything you want to talk about before we get going here? Uh, yeah, uh, I don't know when the music video is coming out, but I worked on a music video for a punk rock group, Never Kept. Uh, it's called Sundown Somehow. Uh, and, uh, yeah, no, that was very cool. So check out the band. They don't have a lot of music out right now, but they were very professional, very cool to work with. So I feel it would be kind of me to plug that video for them. Um, sure. and, uh, my, my friends and I, our photography collective, collective visibly elsewhere if you want to check that out it's on instagram it's just at visibly elsewhere so yeah beautiful well thank you everett thank appreciate you. your time yes we appreciate i appreciate your you guys time very much mm -hmm. yeah. see you around ciao ciao thank you everett and you've been listening to Music Speaks, a podcast for lovers of music everywhere. Next week, we will do our first deep dive of the show, in which I, Hunter, will discuss and analyze Sondheim and Lapine's musical Into the Woods. That's it for me. I'm Sean Kunis. And I'm Hunter Sagona. And keep listening to what you love. <laughs>